0: Hey, folks, I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this one. This edition of the Horror Cult Films podcast comes straight from hell, where it's like a carnival that was designed by Escher, in which the carousel goes round and round to a motorhead soundtrack. This is the first in what we intend to be a four-part miniseries where the Horror Cult Films team look at all ten Hellraiser films in depth. Joining me on this endeavour are my usual co-host Jim Lamming and making his Horror Cult Films podcast debut, Mr. Alistair Yule. Say hi, guys. Hi. Hello there. So, Alistair, firstly, can you tell folks some of the horror films that you like best?
1: Well, I certainly can. Uh, I suppose my love of horror films really started with a film called uh, Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Always stuck in my head, and uh, it's been one of my favourites for years. I could easily always go back to it and check it out again. I think with that film... What I've, I mean, it thematically connected to Hellraiser as well, and that uh, the sphere inside the ship was inspired by the puzzle box, actually. Quite recently, I've checked out for the first time, and it sort of renewed some vigor in me, was uh, Reanimator. And I'd never seen it before, heard about it, and a sort of black comedy element to it as well was uh, was very entertaining. Mm. And of course, Jeffrey Combs is fantastic as the lead in that And following that was another H.P. Lovecraft one, was uh, From Beyond. Oh, yes! Interesting idea, but it didn't quite go anywhere with it.
0: And uh, I believe also, Mouth of Madness is another of your favourites, right?
1: It is, yes. (laughs) Uh, That's two Sam Neill films right there.
0: I am actually yet to see Mouth of Madness. That is one of my to-watch ones. Maybe maybe at some point I'm going to insist we watch all the fucking horror films I've missed. And... uh, of course, we haven't just been watching Hellraiser films lately. We've been we've been doing our homework, yes, but we've also been watching a ton of other stuff. Right, Jim?
2: I finally got time to see No Time to Die, which has been pretty much selling out at my local for the last few weeks. And I'd seen it. It had got quite a lukewarm reception, but I had a great time with it. I uh, really enjoyed it. Great action film, great stunts. Well-paced, considering it's nearly three hours long. And, yeah, I had a great time. But, you know, that's... Slightly off but Getting closer, uh also saw Venom 2, which did not Ooh. disappoint. Uh First one on first viewing was, okay, I thought it was fine, but, uh, you know, warmed to it a bit more on subsequent viewing. So I was quite excited for the sequel, especially seeing as it was directed by Andy Serkis as well. You know, he's uh, renowned for his work with motion capture and so on. And it was just a fun film. You know, I, I had a grin on my face all the way through. It, it knows what it is and just has a great time with it. And you can't ask for more than that if you're asking.
0: You see what I mean by there's really a lack of second act in it, though. How we yeah. just built towards the only fight scene of the entire film? <laughs> <laughs> I, I found that quite refreshing
2: because in, near enough, every single superhero film of the last, or, or what is it, 10, 15 years, it near enough follows the same formula, you know. There's a superhero, we see how they're getting on these days. There's the new baddie, they go up against it. Oh no, they can't quite defeat the new baddie, so let's go back to the drawing board and rethink while something funny might happen. And then we fight the buddy at the end and win. So, you know, it was a nice change of pace, if you ask me. And I thought the whole Venom and Eddie separation was hilarious. It was brilliant. And. Uh, yeah, the fact they went down that route instead of possibly facing carnage about 20 times before the finale <laughs> was so much better than what I was expecting.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the bit where Venom kind of beco- accidentally becomes a gay icon, yeah. or something I, I did not see happening in a Venom film, but no, no. I am kind of glad it did at the same time. I was like, yeah,
2: go for yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> it was surprisingly self-aware, and I think. Learned from the first film what was good and fun about it, and took it and run in, in the sequel. So yeah, it's surprisingly better than the first, in my opinion. Um, and uh, what else have you watched? I finally saw Willy's Wonderland.
0: Uh, that just <laughs> started
2: on Sky Movies last week, I think, in time for Halloween. And yeah, it was okay. It was fun. It was a bit silly. Weird hearing a song called Willy's Wonderland being described as
0: okay. Like I, you hear about it tightly go, it's either going to be good or it'll be shit, but not
2: okay. Well, it's, it's Nick Cage, is it? You, you know you're either going to be in for a masterpiece or just something that exists, aren't you? So, <laughs> And it kind of errs towards the latter on that one. You know, it was a, it was a fun concept and a silly film. Uh, probably is a bit too long could have quite easily shaved a good 10 15 minutes off that uh and i did make the mistake of having the little win in the room at the same time while i was watching it because i thought <laughs> it wouldn't be quite as graphic <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally i've seen antlers as well recently oh. which was a cracking little horror film uh it was It was bleak, dark, nasty, and very, very good.
0: I completely forgot to add that to my list. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, film. It's had an absolute humping from a lot of the critics, Mm. saying it's shite, but at the same time, yeah, I loved it. I thought, like, as a mood piece, it was excellent. I think the central metaphor was somewhat confused, but at the same time, I liked this idea of Wendigo seeming to represent a number of different things. You know, it's a violence humans commit against the Earth, it's a violence humans are committing against each other, it was all about the cycle of abuse. Like, there's a lot going on in there. Mm. I think it probably needs a slight redrafting to get its message more coherently. But at the same time, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. It had a very X-Files
2: feel for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the subtext did seem a bit confused. And there were times where you were wondering who the main protagonist is it, it does seem to flip between the, the young kid and the school teacher a, a fair bit but, but yeah everyone in it's great it looks fantastic but the, the way it's shot the scope and the scale you know the northern uh, US town I, I love those small towns you've got the, the trees the mountains the single-story buildings that make up the town center just that whole Twin Peaks vibe even though it's nothing like that um, Just that small town setting, it looks so good, and just the grimy, grotty horror of it all was a great time. And I can only assume that it's had a bit of a critical mauling because maybe it's a different film to what they were expecting. The trailer does kind of make it out to be more of a werewolf film uh, than what we get, but, you know, it's just a trailer. But (laughs) it's it's a very good film. with Great performances from everyone, especially the little lad in it. Um, Oh, yeah, he's great. It's it's really good.
0: Here, Alistair, have those ones? You've seen Bond, right? Yes, I have. What were your views on No Time to Die?
1: Well, uh, as I said, it is the longest of the Bond films. I quite enjoyed it. It's great to spend time with characters that you've seen in the cinema in so many iterations. and certainly the new Q, um, fantastic, and all of the MI6 cast. I suppose it's... uh, I think one of my issues with No Time to Die actually comes stems from the villains in this sense, mm-hmm. in which in a Daniel Craig era, the villains have been great uh, up until Spectre, where I found Blofeld's dialogue to be quite pretentious. Like, every, mm-hmm. he's talking about everything in a meta-type way. And mm-hmm. like that fault is copy-pasted onto a character, Lyucifer Safin. <laughs> and, <laughs> fucking name <laughs> I, mean, kind of, I mean we're look at, talking about a franchise here that once had a character in it called Holly Goodhead uh, so <laughs> it's it's a strange criticism to throw at the film that that character has a weird name but Fuck. it's true It's although it's usually a female with a sexual innu- innuendo for a name and then this is the first time we've given we've literally called the villain like Satan twice <laughs> Just just in case, Lucifer or Safin, if either one of those was too subtle, the the first name will make up for it.
3: With with the
0: baddies, the thing that really pissed me off was the casting of Rami Malek You know, absolutely brilliant actor. You see Mm -hmm. him in stuff like Mr. Robot, he's excellent. You know, Freddie Mercury, he's excellent. He's not old enough for that role. Like, the age difference between him and Bond's love interest in real life is three years, and he doesn't look three years older than her. You know, you could buy him as being a younger brother. He's a very youthful looking guy.
1: This is part of one of my theories when I was watching the film, because he has uh, scarification across his face. He's had some injury. We don't see what happened to him, but the audience, you know, very clearly the movie tells the audience this has happened to this character. And I couldn't help but wonder, is, is that to disguise the old age makeup? We won't make him look older, we'll just give him some scarification and say he's older.
0: (laughs) I can absolutely see that having been what they did. I think the thing is, the Bond films have an unfortunate history of saying we'll we'll give the bad guy some form of scarification. Um, With this one, I, I think you're absolutely right, that's probably what we're going for. But even just by changing a bit of the backing story, we're meant to believe that he's a fully grown man when she's a child, right? Because he's able able to come in and maul her dad, so that's at the very beginning of the film, so not a spoiler for anyone. And it's obvious that who'd done it. But at the same time, it's, uh, yeah, they they just don't sell it. And then his motivation is absolutely baffling as well. So they a kind of confuse complexity with depth where he gives us, ah, but Mr. Bond, we're quite similar, you and I. <laughs> uh, giving us an explanation for why we're not particularly similar. Like, we both kill people. You go, yeah, but... He kills people who kill people. You just kill indiscriminately. That's not
1: cool. So it was a shallow take on villainy to we <laughs> both kill people. And for someone who <laughs> is pretending to be as complex as Lyusifer Safin is, you know, he uh, he's clearly not putting that much thought into the similarities between himself and Bond. And just as a sidetrack, just there's a man and a woman. Their surnames, you know, they're married. Their surnames are Safin. Do you <laughs> not think... Are we going to name our (laughs) child Lucifer? Really? (laughs) And and don't be surprised if he turns out to be a bad guy.
0: I don't want to mention the ending of the film, but something I will say as a criticism is I think this entire series, and maybe this one will be quite good if you watch all five in a row, or maybe it'll be better if you watch all five in a row, I should say. I did quite enjoy it. But it struck me as this whole series is kind of all about deconstructing a form of traditional masculinity. The problem is that the form of traditional masculinity being deconstructed in this film in particular, it's not really on display. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bond's kind of lost a lot of his asshole You know, he's, um, he's lost a lot of his more negative characteristics to the extent that he's just become a bit of a generic, brooding uh, hero.
1: A lot of the film he could have replaced with Ethan Hunt. I find the Bond character is has often been quite malleable and, and changed to a degree. I mean, there's some, some of the fundamental basics are there is that he was always a seducer. He always beats the villain, um, and he has his intellectual rivalry with the main villain, a physical rivalry with one of the main henchmen. And I think it's one of the... I think it's Tomorrow Never Dies with Pierce Brosnan, where now, bearing in mind, back in the 60s, Bond was introduced... Smoking, puffing away, smoking, and he was smoking right through up until the Timothy Dalton era. Pierce Brosnan, he's at this uh, airport. They're selling these jets to nefarious ne'er do wells, and there's this guy about to puff at a fag. Pierce Brosnan knocks him out and says, Terrible habit. You're like, coming from you, Bob? (laughs) Really?
0: Yeah. Oh, generally speaking, decent wee movie. I didn't like that it builds up to a shootout in a bunch of corridors, which we've seen so many times in this film, in this in this series. Yeah. At the same time, the stunt work was really good. The locations were really impressive. And you know, there's certain plot developments that I didn't think I would like, but I did really like. I thought they were well handled. We also got returned to the bad guy, kind of not seducing Bond as such. But showing Bond around, you know, detailing his plan, having a nice wee chat, showing him around the base, right? Uh, you know, that, sort of, that sort of tradition. Like we see that in Goldfinger, right? And so that, in a way it's doing a bit of back to basics along with all the clear references to an imaginary secret service that come throughout the course of the film.
2: I, I did get Doctor No vibes from the final act as well. It, it did feel like it was more of a hark back to its roots even though it's going in a more contemporary direction but i think that's one of the things that endeared it to me was it was acknowledging where it's come from um almost in a kind of misty eyed way at times as well especially with the uh on her majesty's secret service references I, mm-hmm. at, even at the beginning i was like oh this is nice when they play the music while, where he's out for a drive. Uh, you know along the coast I thought oh this is good yeah just those little callbacks dotted around and I thought it was a really nice thing to end his run on I suppose
0: yeah yeah absolutely
2: absolutely uh, you guys got any thoughts on who you think is going to be the next Bond? I think it's going to be a relatively unknown casting. Someone probably known from TV, but I, I don't think it's going to be anyone particularly big name at the moment.
1: What about yourself, Alistair? I know there's a few actors that are interested, and there's a few that I'd be quite keen to see take on the role. Henry Cavill, for one, because I think he's shown his uh, potential Bond chops back in The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Mm. Whether it'll happen or not, these castings are usually quite a surprise, but uh, I think he, I think he should given a good crack at the whip i think he was shortchanged with superman give him some bond
0: i think of henry cavill he's a really good actor my only concern about him as bond is that he's quite big and like you gotta have like i mean physically big like you look at henry cavill you go he could beat the shit out of me and i don't think it's a feeling that you get with the other james bond actors necessarily um that i that's my only concern about henry cavill other than that i think he'd be a fantastic choice. And and I will add, that when I realised he was quite big, I was watching Mission Impossible, so that might be why I realised this. (laughs) Recently, I watched Dune, and I thought Dune was fantastic. Like, I was going into this not really knowing the material except for the David Lynch film, and whilst I did have some issues with it, mostly revolving around the protagonist, like, as a cinematic experience, that was just amazing. Aesthetically, it's almost unparalleled from the last few years in terms of blockbusters and the soundtrack, with the exception of some of the John Williams classics the soundtrack is just about the best soundtrack I have ever fucking heard like, as a movie, it was a really good, really complete experience strongly recommended on the biggest screen that you can. What do you make of it, Alistair?
1: Again, absolutely loved this movie um, I was very excited about it going into it because uh, obviously it was June back at school I did a book review on June and it was, uh, I remember reading this thinking, it's huge. And it's like, um, you know, you think, oh, this Bond film's three hours long. You sit down and it just whizzes by. And uh, June, I, I got through that quite quickly because there are, there are so many ideas in it. And it's an amazing universe. And from the book and this, and I do believe this movie adaptation is the definitive adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. It, it's a fully formed universe, right from the get-go, mm. and seeing how they treated the different planets, Caladan, Seleucus Secundus, and Arrakis itself, and it's fantastic. Uh, there's just so many little details in it that just, it, it made this, what I remember from the book, just pop and come to life, and it was it was a really enjoyable experience.
0: I heard some people suggest it was quite complicated to follow, but at the same time, I think with the world building, it was done quite efficiently. So a lot of show don't tell that they were doing. They didn't just go, here's the exposition dump, which is what the David Lynch one does at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We've got a character just explain everything in the universe in dialogue. You know, I like to this when it tells you what you need to know when you need to know it. But at the same time, there's enough kind of depth there, but that, like, or offhand references, that someone who wants to know more can know more. Can but you're say- giving it everything to work with.
1: Hmm. I might just want to add that I would say that there is, let's say, necessary storytelling, and that in this, cause this is part one because Dune's a big novel, and the intention is to do the first half in this film, and the second half of the book will be adapted for the next film. And there is, you don't see the Emperor, and you don't see any members of the Spacing Guild. They're uh, they're kept in the shadows in the background. They're referenced. But they're not introduced, and I think that will give the audience uh, an easier time digesting the material because we're introduced already to a lot of the Bene Gesserit, House Atreides, House Arconan, who the Sadakar are, why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, there's there's a lot introduced in the first story, but uh, what will come later on would be more necessary for that section of the story. So I think there's some juggling uh, going on, but I would say it's it's aided the story for uh, the movie format.
0: I was quite surprised by how little Zendaya was in it, given her prominent role in the advertising. For most of the film, she's just walking away from the camera and occasionally turning around to give a flirtatious smile. Must have been a couple of days filming at most. Uh, but I assume she's going to be a large part in the second half. Like, I've only yes. seen the David Lynch film, and I barely remember the David Lynch film.
1: As having read the book, I, I knew that we weren't going to see much of the character um, but I think it was a lot of that will be set up for uh, the next
2: piece.
0: Hey, Jim, you've not seen this one yet, which surprises me, given how much of a fan you were of the old 1980s classic.
2: Yeah, um, unfortunately, Time's just got the better of me recently. Uh, I'm hoping to catch it later this week, uh, if I can, although they are showing a Neon Genesis double bill later in the week, so <laughs> I may have to weigh up my options with that one. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I know it's a completely different beast to the Lynch film, uh, which I would personally rate as a five-star film, so I'm really interested to see how they weigh up next to each other.
0: And uh, the other stuff I've been watching,
2: you guys seen Ghostwatch from 1992? Only when it was broadcast for the very first time back then. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: Is- so fucking good, like, it was so ahead of its time, you know, we're looking at something that's doing found footage long before a found footage is established it's also just like the kind of shite that you would have seen on BBC at the time, we're like, all right, (laughs) you know, here's Michael Parkinson, the hosting, we've got got, uh, Craig Charles on site just being a little bit irritating very authentic, I can only imagine when people were watching it in real life it must have been quite an immersive experience
2: Well, I would have been... Seven, eight, back in 92. And you can imagine an eight-year-old watching that on the TV thinking it's a genuine TV show. So yeah i would i was cheating myself at the time
0: <laughs> like oh maybe pipes is coming to get me have uh, have you watched this alistair
2: i know what you're
1: talking about and i've heard it referenced but i've not actually seen it
0: absolutely fucking ace i got the dvd i'll give you a lead
1: cool. uh, it had the sort of war of the worlds effect didn't it where people believe this is a real thing <laughs> oh year hey, eight-year-old needed that's for sure <laughs> <laughs>
0: And uh, I think the other thing is, if so this was airing before the internet even existed and stuff like that, so you wouldn't have had the same immediate playback as sort of immediate feedback coming in the people going, oh, this is fake, look at that. And also, because you're looking at, like, Michael Parkinson as being in on it. Now, for younger listeners, which I'm sure there's many, apparently our average listener age is between 35 and 45, <laughs> but at the same time, for younger listeners... I cannot convey to you how wildly mild Michael Parkinson was in the 1990s. So, his involvement will have given it a level of credibility, a level of assumed realism. Because you'd be like, Michael Parkinson wouldn't do anything that's uh, is this rage, would he? But uh, he did. And uh, lastly, I watched the latest Netflix slasher for Someone Inside Your House by the director of uh, Creeps 1 and 2. And unfortunately a real step down for them. It's kind of entertaining trash at points. The problem is it tries to do a kind of commentary on cancel culture, and it just can't really seem to decide what sort of message it's trying to do, like which side of the debate it's trying to lampoon. I guess it ends up doing this sort of slightly centrist position that you get with stuff like the Hunt, where it basically says nothing. And uh, aside from the weak commentary, it's really quite obvious who the killer is in it as well. Like, I clocked quite early, it's probably that person. But then I thought, no, 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 they're trying to manipulate me to thinking it's that person. And then it was that person. And not in the smart way that Scream does that kind of thing. You know, it's not because the characters don't suspect this guy. It's just, as a viewer, I did. And that irritated the heck out of me. Uh, Alistair, what else have you been watching?
1: Let me have a think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i've been very busy with work recently as uh, so
0: what about that ben shapiro film <laughs> run fight and run, fight. Uh, no run hide fight
1: i do remember seeing that um <laughs> that film oh man it was as disappointing as i thought it would be and i thought it was gonna be taking a very unhealthy approach to because the, the story is essentially a school shooting Uh, essentially what the narrative is and the lead character and it makes some of the most insane decisions i could imagine for instance there's a scene where she captures one of the shooters ties him up and then about 15 minutes later she releases him and gives him back his gun (laughs) now i mean realisms flow out the window here I mean, the lesson that you're learning from that is in no way applicable to any real school shooting. I would say that it's, it, if it's trying to do a commentary on actual school shootings, it's failed and it should probably be best ignored.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whilst the film is undeniably bad taste since it's die Hard during a school shooting... I still find it undeniably thrilling. Like, I'd still find myself quite entertained by the whole spectacle of it. Again, just this sort of, you really shouldn't do that aspect. But it was still really good
1: fun. I think another one of the problems with that film is, in order to maintain tension, you have to keep people in the school. And the shooters only effectively (laughs) take control of the cafeteria. And we're looking at, like, this is early in the morning. And like by the afternoon there's still classrooms that still haven't vacated the premises. They take forever to get out of the building.
0: Yes, I don't believe in victim blaming, but the characters <laughs> in this are so fucking stupid. <laughs> uh, um the whole idea of like uh what'll make us safer from guns, more guns, is basically <sighs> the message of the whole movie. And that's relatively problematic. Not, not necessarily a, a, a smart film, not a, not a particularly well-made film, but a fun
1: film. So I looked into the film afterwards. Do you remember the deer hunting scene at the very beginning? Yeah, that was, that was real, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, so a real-life deer died in order to make this film. Was it worth it? And then Ben Shapiro gets a cut from everyone who watches it. So I don't normally recommend watching movies illegally, but if you watch this one illegally, I won't tell on you.
3: <laughs> um,
0: before we get to the main event, which is, of course, Cell Hellraiser's 1, 2, and 3, I thought I'd mentioned Paranormal Activity. Did you guys know that there's now a Paranormal Activity Part 7 and it's
2: uh, available right now? Yeah, i heard that it takes a different direction. From the previous films, however, but that's pretty much all. Um, is, it, is it a Paramount Plus exclusive? I don't even know if we can get yeah, that. Yeah, so I,
0: I don't think, yeah, in the UK we don't have it yet. I don't know if we'll get another distributor uh, or if Paramount will just put it up on Amazon or something along those lines. Like Paramount Plus doesn't exist. I don't think we have an equivalent here. It's got some reasonable reviews, which I wasn't expecting, given how little fanfare this had. Like, I didn't even know it existed until the day it came out. And it's like, Part of Activity 7? Shit, <laughs> yeah, I forgot about voice movies. <laughs> because, like, the first one I thought was a lot of fun in the cinema, right? You know, and you've got this sort of reverse Star Trek with the odd-numbered ones. One, three, and five are all quite good. Two, four, and six are not so good. Particularly number four, which is the really, really boring one about witches. Where I think one of the problems with the concept is buried in that concept, we have to watch the ghost start from nothing, like moving a toaster, to getting gradually stronger and stronger as the film goes on. So you've got the same kind of structure. The fifth one did quite well to subvert that, particularly with the bringing the time travel elements towards the end, which uh, a lot of people hated. I personally loved them. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll catch part seven at some point, I'm sure. Anyway, enough chatting about those. Let's talk about Hellraiser Part 1.
3: I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. <laughs>
0: Part one, everyone, an adaptation of Clive Barker's own The Hellbound Heart. I absolutely love this movie. What about you two?
2: You're both big fans, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's one of those that seems there's not a lot to it, uh, you know, at a glance. But it's a, a very small setting. It's mainly at this house. And... If you hadn't seen it before, you'd seen, you've got the Cenobites, um, you would think it's a film about those. But really, they're a monster or a group of monsters that rarely play a part. I mean, there's, what, less than five minutes of screen time for them pretty much in total here. So it's it's more of a domestic horror <laughs> than anything, uh, with a sort of weird manky love triangle uh, between uh, two brothers and uh, (laughs) one of a promiscuous wife. And it's such a grotty, grimy film at the same time. Although, that has to be said, the effects work in it, some of the best I've ever seen, absolutely disgusting, horrible, and incredible. But yeah, it's it's surprisingly stripped down for a horror of its time. Obviously, the 80s was the big slasher boom, uh, lots of bogeymen like Freddy and Jason, that sort of thing, so it, this pretty much was a refreshing change from all that, and it was kind of subtle and understated, despite being extremely gory and visceral.
0: Yeah, I think I'd agree with all that. I'd really like the dramatic element. You've kind of got like... Uh... To sound wanky, it's like Ibsen by way of Dante. You know, you've got this very small family kind of drama, this relationship is clearly on the rocks. And then you've got this, like, demonic stuff going on at the side. You've got Julia, like, you know, do I try and make this work if this guy, he's a good dad, but at the same time, I'm not sexually attracted to him. And then you've got this, like... (laughs) This corpse, but she'd wrap her fuck with her husband. <laughs> and uh, that's a sexy cat. You know, Uncle uh, Uncle Frank here, he comes from a door and is like, sort of porno uptake, like a vampire <laughs> repeatedly asking if he can come inside, you know? Yeah, I thought like he got that conflict across really damn well. How about yourself, Alistair? You're a big fan of Hellraiser.
3: Yeah,
1: I do love this film. Um, so I think in terms of being a critic of the film, it's, uh, what's the phrase? Murder your darlings? one author once said mm. um, I think with this film it, if I was just to give a little bit of backstory about my experience with this film cause, uh I have sort of a like up, strict upbringing in a sense where uh, my dad would let me watch a 15 before I turned 15 I had to be 15 on the dot before I could then watch uh, films rated 15 and I went around to a friend's one night and he just stuck on the film Event Horizon I absolutely loved it. And I was thinking about it for days afterwards. And uh, I discovered something that's like, I enjoyed that film. I want to see more films like this. And then I watched uh, Peter Weller's Screamers, which didn't quite hit the mark. And then I was just staying up late one night, turned the TV on, and stumbled upon the very first Hellraiser. And this is, it was, for me, the first Hellraiser was exactly the right film at exactly the right time in my life. And I absolutely loved it. The story, that sort of dark romance, the uh, sort of seducing plot where she's luring men back to bring Frank back to full health. And the sort of the heroine story you have with uh, Kirsty Cotton trying to save her dad from all the evil that's being awoken in the house. And I think I have to point out as well that, yeah, the the Cenobites are in no way centre stage in this film. They're definitely a part of it, a big scary part of the film. But they're not they're not even the primary antagonists. Uh I would say Frank Frank Cotton is essentially the villain of the piece and the villainess. I'd say the only character in this film that really has a character arc is Julia. And she's prepared, you know, incrementally to go further and further and further for her love for Frank. It just draws her in more and more until because almost at the cusp of the third act she's debating with frank he's wanting her to kill her husband and she's still saying no and that that turn into to full evil that she makes it's it's a great piece, and there's the, some of the visuals, and I have to say the soundtrack as well, by Christopher Young. Um, now, I don't know if you guys know this, but there was an alternate soundtrack commissioned for this film that never got the green light by the studio. And these were friends of Clive Barker, and it's a band called Coil, and they've released it, you can check it out on YouTube, Coil's uh, unreleased soundtrack. It's a bit iffy, some of it, but what I do like is actually their... Because we have to remember the lament configuration is fundamentally a musical puzzle box. And I think the musical aspect of it is lost after the first film. People will open the box and it's just the mechanics of the box, but you hear the little tinkling tune in the first film. I would actually challenge anyone and say that the Coil version of the box's music was better with Coil than it was Christopher Young's. that's one thing to look out for
0: i check that on YouTube, folks. Um, what you're saying about the lack of arcs, I completely agree. If they're able to use the relationship they established between Kirsty and both Julia and... Uh, uh, Fre- oh, that Julia, Frank and Larry. They're able to use that for advantage for part two. I guess there's also a sort of maturation angle where we see this elderly couple that don't really... Ge- or, not elderly, but this older couple that they don't really have any passion there. Do you have that juxtaposed with her kind of... Um, Coming out, her falling for this guy who, by the way, can you imagine seducing someone with that stupid cigarette in the mouth trick (laughs) and then making a sexual innuendo across the dinner table (laughs) in front of both heads
1: of parents? The balls on Steve. I think Julia does demonstrate a lack of interest in but Mm. Because what he says was he's pouring her drink and she's like, stop, stop. And, And she says, I won't be able to stand up. At which point he replies, so lie down. And then the the camera immediately jump cuts to a a picture of a very suspicious Larry Cotton looking at the two of them. I have to comment on this dinner scene because what I love about this film is that there's a lot of scenes, like when you're you're your inner nine year old self, you're watching a movie, you like, I would have loved that movie as a kid. But now watching this film, I'm like, even the boring bits you could say, I still want to see more of them. They talk about that mm. dinner scene as this is the night of the paper hat. I was like, Is this a tradition? What is that? There's there's more <laughs> story to be told there. But there's sorry, there's one uh, strange interaction there. Um, with Larry's talking about his injured hand and he's asked, Does it hurt? And he's like, Oh, do you want a drink? Then it cuts to a woman that just says, Doctors. Then her husband, like approvingly saying, that's right, honey.
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw that this time. Like, what the fuck was that about? It was terrible banter. Ter- I d- yeah, it is. I, d- I do like well, how much of a kind of beta they present uh, Larry as in this, where, you know, mm-hmm. casual dinner party and he's sitting there talking about how hurt he was. And we, we have this too, when he's watching the boxing, pretending to punch the lawn like this is him vicariously living through the guys on the screen. And then, I, of course, you contrast this with the sort of machismo of uh, of Frank. Like Frank's, like he's a guy that you fuck, whereas Larry's a guy that you you make love to until the point where you no longer love them.
1: <laughs> I want to comment about that boxing scene as well because, as I've I suppose matured, you know, quote unquote matured, uh, that's kind of rapidly become one of my favourite scenes because it it conveys so much, so smoothly and so elegantly. So the two of them, it's during a thunderstorm, Larry and his uh, wife, Julia, they're watching the boxing match. And as the the game gets going, Larry just sort of leans up and he's like, his own fists are in the air, go on, get him. And then he looks over to Julia and then he sort of reorients his behavior to pretend that he's not as into it as he really is because he's trying to be what he thinks she likes. And in doing so, he's completely failing because he's inauthentic. Mm. Whereas with the difference between Larry and Frank is Frank is an authentic person. Now, Frank is a complete asshole, but he's authentically an asshole. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's talk about Frank here. I enjoy that at the beginning. We, there, it's a show don't tell thing. We very quickly get a sense for the sort of guy Frank is. You see all this kind of... A cult iconography around the place. All these photos of him shagging people as well. Like, this is a guy who's basically driven by id, driven by the idea of a pleasure principle. You know, he just wants to be satisfied and he just wants some sort of brand new experience. Like, there's something truly horrific about this idea of a, uh, a hell where you're disemboweled, but you're still alive. You're still feeling all this, even though your body is in pieces and it's one of the biggest themes of these movies is hubris you know you create a monster that you can't control Frank does it and so does Julia later on in the movie where she creates a monster she can't control in the sequels we get the exact same thing with the uh, with the doc in it and also with uh, JP but we'll come to those in a wee bit this is going to be a long episode (laughs) and um, I I I think that that these kind of themes just like the sort of sex and violence thing um They're worked in so organically. Mm. Like we have Kirsty having the affair and that's juxtaposed with uh, Larry having this ridiculous amount of blood coming out of his hand from cutting it in the door. And yet at the same time later on we see the sex and violence parallel as well, uh, violence and pleasure, where... Kirsty thinks that Julia's having an affair, but she's actually killing people at that point. It's just so well done. I'm a big fan of this movie, especially just this small, intimate, character-driven piece. It's. Uh, I don't think I'm giving a huge spoiler for the rest of the series when I say that this is
1: the best one. No, not at all. It certainly is. I just want to jump in on the back of what you said there in terms of the character building. And some elegant pieces of storytelling that's conveyed to the audience exactly who Frank is now, because Frank has been visited by the Cenobites, he's not in the early stages of the story. But what we do get is dialogue between uh, Larry and Julia, and uh, obviously Larry's oblivious to her uh, trysts with uh, Frank, but he he says the way he says certain things, it's like it's a given. It's like, oh, Frank's made one of his famous getaways. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that says so much. Frank does getaways. He's famous for them. He's done them a lot. And doing getaways is something that someone who's in trouble and wanted by other people would normally do. It just says so much. And also, um, they also say, look at all of this crap. Like, Larry's just him. And one observation I had was Frank and Larry are two brothers, they never interact directly in this film. They don't see that once. But you know that those two would not have gone along. They, they don't like each other at all.
0: Oh, that would be an awkward Christmas for of their place around
1: the old cotton household. Larry also says about Frank, because um, the house will be in his name as well, and he I'll just buy him out. I've never known Frank to kick money out of bed. So the meaning that Frank has always been a needy person and as you say, David, that id, that uh, that search, that that wantonness, that you know, he's the type of guy I would imagine would want money, but he doesn't want to work for it.
0: Yeah, and I think also, I guess, it establishes that uh, Larry's a man of like, you know, he's of good means. He's he's, a, he's he's got stability with Larry. That's why people like him. He's a good dad. He's got lots of money. You know, he's stable, stability. You're safe. You're steady with Larry. Which words, Frank? He's like a fucking roller
2: coaster. Uh, Jim, what are your thoughts on Frank and Larry? Uh, yeah, chalk and cheese, isn't it? Uh, I mean, credit where it's due to Larry. I mean, he he really tries to make things work, but as, as Alice has already mentioned, it's you know it's it's, it's a front, isn't it? He he feels revealing himself to who he really is may scare off Julia, or, you know, make things worse. As they're clearly trying to work out their relationship. He's balancing Kirsty, who you know. His wife, Kirsty's mother, has died. So he's, feel you know, you can see he's trading on eggshells, trying to balance those two relationships, but all, all the while trying his best. Whereas Frank is just, you know, it's chaos. He, he comes along, gets his own way, does his own thing, and, well, he, he gaslights Julia, basically, <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah, the, the complete opposite. So, you know, Frank's obviously the frill he he's excitement whereas you've said Larry's stability and you know, you can see in you know the the really well made uh, the, the bit where they're moving in with the mattress julia's in the in, in on the top floor reminiscing about her and frank and uh, you know the, the mattress has been shoved up the stairs while it keeps cut into her flashbacks where frank's basically making those same movements <laughs> on the, and, uh, yeah, it's, that's really well done. <laughs> and, yeah, you, you just see the, the level of excitement in her life. I mean, you know, why she bothered staying with Larry after first meeting Frank, I don't know, but I, I guess that's the excitement she wanted. And, yeah, it's it's an interesting relationship. I, you know, he he is the villain of the film, despite the Cenobites who have really made a, a, an appearance at this point. Uh, being, you know, famous movie monsters. But, yeah, and and the way he manages to basically coerce Julia into getting his victims for him, just, you know, the way she remembers what they were like together. And she wants that again, clearly. Larry can be a bit of a wet lettuce at times as well. But he, as you mentioned, the boxing scene, he does seem to come across as a little more genuine around that point but again it's around that point where things start going to ship. I guess we get a bit more into Kirsty's side of things as she I, I guess she's the point of the film you know we need some kind of peril so that's what Kirstie's for and she's also I guess a conduit for the Cenobites as well.
1: I just want to interject quickly and say that I think with the meeting of uh, Frank and Julia it's not stated in dialogue, that's true, because um, I've watched uh, for Christmas one year, I got the special edition and I had the um, uh, the DVD commentary. I'm not going to reference the commentary too much, but they met after the wedding. so Julie was already married to Larry when they first met, and in the scene where they're making love for the first time. On top of the bed is very subtle imagery here of the, the wedding dress displayed out <laughs> on the bed. And it's <laughs> on top of that that they're doing it. Um, one thing I want to say about this film is that there's a lot of the directorial sort of juxtapositions that I absolutely love. Like, she's reminiscing about that night with Frank as the marital mattress is being moved up the steps. And I think there's also the... Kirsty's breaking uh, she turns a tap and it immediately breaks and showers her, and she says, "Have you got a towel?" which prompts her to remember Frank saying that when she first met him standing in the rain that The, the way the flashbacks are done are very very elegantly
2: done, very smooth. This is Clive Barker's first film as well, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and considering that, and you know the, the money it was made for, it's astonishing the results, really.
0: This is a movie that definitely improves upon the source material as well. The novella, The Hellbound Heart, is perfectly readable, don't get me wrong, but it's interesting that Barker changes it so that Kirsty is the daughter as of Larry, as opposed to being the next door neighbour, which she is in that. She's literally the girl next door in the novella. And it just personalises the whole uh, conflict a lot more. You know, personalises his story a lot more to have his family unit with the uh, um, well, the Cenobites coming in. I remember seeing this interview with uh, Gary Tuncliffe, the uh, writer for parts nine and ten, where and also did special effects makeup from I think it's part part four onwards. And um, he was talking about how for him the kind of appeal of the first film is it's almost like a mafia movie, right? The Cenobites are the mafia. You've got uh, this guy double-crossing them, you know, pissing them off, goes on the run, and they're right to try and get him. You know, come to get him, end up get, uh, threatening the family. They're like, all oh, right, you can have Frank. didn't make me wonder why the fuck Frank keeps a box on him. But, <laughs> you know... Um, Fair enough. It, it, it wouldn't make sense. It, like It doesn't really make a whole lot of character sense for me that he has it. At the same time, it's a sort of plot hole that I only noticed the second time I watched it, so I, I'm willing to forgive it a little bit. I can also believe it's a sort of
1: absolutely rad thing that Frank is probably likely to do. I want to maybe say that I think this film follows... Uh, not strictly sort of a Dario Argento-style filmmaking, but there's an element of what I would call dream logic. Mm-hmm. So there's certain things that, uh, you know, obviously don't hold up under any kind of logical scrutiny, but they're there and they add to the atmosphere of the film. For instance, um, I mean, well, I mean, as you both have seen this, when Julia, like, Kirsty, comes to the house, she wants her dad, where is he? Julia leads her up to the room where Frank is. And as Julia... she. <laughs> Claire Higgins did such a great performance with Julia. She really did. And she, mm-hmm. steps, she takes a few steps back. Ashley Lawrence, as Kirsty caught, walks in, and the door slams all by itself. And do you remember that? And yes. you know, there, there's, there's no power that could have moved that door. And this again happens in the, um, in the hospital sequence where Kirsty's having a dream about this rose and its petals are opening up. And then she wakes up to see a nurse sat in front of a TV watching an image of a rose with these petals (laughs) opening up so there's very striking images there um i I suppose i want to do a small little bit of nitpick there which is it's a little scene that sort of always catches me out where um it's the it's kirstie's first dream sequence and i think it's one of these scenes that um because we introduce We have Kirsty introduced in Act 1. Her and Julia don't get along, but she loves her father. And and say what you will about Larry being a wet blanket. What I like about the film is that it it does portray him as a good father. And he is a good father, and he cares about his daughter. And um, she's not really necessary to the story until Act 3. Basically, when she has that very first dream sequence, and she's walking through... Someone must have ripped a pillow open or something because there's feathers everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you're hearing a baby cry. And this is the first time we hear babies crying, but we're going to hear that a lot as the movies go on crying, <laughs> crying babies. Crying babies go to hell, apparently. That's the sound effect <laughs> for hell. And she sees this body on this table under a white blanket and a white sheet and blood just starts seeping through and sits up, and it's it's her dead father. Now, it's, uh, as Garth Marenghi would call it, it's a fearful vision. <laughs> um, but then she wakes up from the dream, or she's screaming. It cuts to a picture of her Ashley Lawrence screaming, then it cuts to somebody waking up. It's not her, it's actually her boyfriend. Yes. Do you remember that? And that yep. always just catches me off. I think it should be her waking up from that dream. I've a
0: backing story question for you guys. So, it was a bit where... Frank, obviously, has a catchphrase of Come to Daddy in this, right? It was a bit where when she first sees the corpse of Frank and he goes, It's Uncle Frank! Come to Daddy, remember? I was like, okay. Do we assume from a backing story that, that, uh, that he uh, sexually assaulted Kirsty when she was younger?
3: I
2: didn't personally pick that up i just got the idea is just a bit of a creep i mean it's it may or may not be implied I, I mean but personally from what i see i just guess frank was the black sheep of the family and you know as you mentioned earlier the unwelcome guest of christmas so <laughs> it's not just because you said come the come to daddy line which he also says to uh,
0: hmm. Julia when he's trying to get sexual access, get in the book. It's because he says remember before he says it. That struck me as a bit of a like that maybe he was uh maybe you know, maybe he was very lecherous around her, for instance. Maybe this I, is part of the reason we don't speak to him. That is a complete cun. Maybe the other reason we <laughs> don't speak to him.
1: I didn't get that either. Um I don't think he I think he might have said that as a thing in passing, or he might have said it to impress another woman as this is an adult joke that a child won't get but I don't get an impression I, I don't think the character is meant to be a paedophile I mean he, he is obviously uh, sexually off the rails but in this film he does demonstrate very clear sexual interest in Kirsty I mean he he talks about her having grown up and filled out and these aren't really things you want to hear from your uncle I would imagine
3: Yes, that's
1: and, right. Yeah, he's, he talks about how beautiful she is. and he, he's, I think he's very much, because um, I think what he says, come to daddy, he's trying to reestablish that uh, familiarity there. I just want to talk about very quickly about some of the voice, the voice acting in this, because the, the actor who plays the, the normal Frank, that's not his voice that you hear. And I think it actually works quite well in the sense that we see Frank as himself, as a sort of skeleton with tendons, and then literally a more fleshed-out individual. And after that, he's wearing his brother's skin. So this is one character that goes through four changes in the one movie, and there's a literal face-off element to this film, and it's the same voice for the first three, but on the third one, Andrew Robinson is using his own voice. Mm. Earlier on in the film, when... Uh, Frank is being really inappropriate to her and she takes the box, throws it out the window and legs it. And she has that sort of dizzy, you know, the old cliche of uh, the woman's going to faint. And she's hearing voices in her head and one of them, and this is foreshadowing as well, it is Andrew Robinson, not the other voice actor saying, come to daddy. You saw it as well.
2: I I picked up on that watching it earlier today, actually. Um, It's something I hadn't noticed until today funnily enough Um, but yeah I think because I was kind of only listening rather than watching and yeah I noticed that it was him rather than Frank speaking of voices where the hell is this film
0: set we have (laughs) it ostensibly set in Liverpool but at the same time we have one British actor among the cast
1: it is Uh, transatlantic they want to make it ambiguous if it's sort of america or the uk Mm -hmm. but one thing i was uh, sort of discussing with jim earlier is that i found it interesting that this house this clearly english house and the film opens with the key rattling and an american and an english woman walking in and it's the american guy that talks about this place as his childhood home (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I clearly you've got uh, some dockyards there that are very English. Uh, we we see Kirsty just walking along them, and yeah, I think is it the removal men? They're actually English actors. I've seen them in you know, a documentary uh, about the film. Uh, they're as English as I am, uh, but the, the the younger guy at least has got an American accent in, in the film, and I think overall. It's possibly implied that it's kind of New York set. I mean, obviously the deferred film is New York City, but overall I f- I'm assuming it's kind of upstate New York because in this one, uh, again, people in the street, the doctors have got American accents. There's a guy wearing a New York Yankees hat. In the second film, uh, I know we're going to get onto that shortly, but uh, you've got the policeman at the beginning. I mean, they're clearly in an NYPD uniform, uh, and in the third film, they mentioned they sourced the puzzle box from a, a, a an abandoned mental asylum, uh, which implies that it wasn't too far away. So uh, putting mm. the pieces together from all three of those, I'm assuming they've gone for, for an a American setting, mm. or, even though it's very clearly this first film at least is filmed in this country <laughs>
1: yeah i would say it's i think it's the sort of thing that will happen in a british made film but will try and americanize it in a way that mm. the americans wouldn't try and make one of their horror films english in any way and the another film that does this actually is uh underworld with kate beckinsale that's it, very deliberately ambiguous as to whether this is um UK or US.
0: I have a wee bone of contention to pick up about the phrase puzzle box in this film and the series as a whole. The puzzle is not very difficult. Like It's (laughs) a bit where they're going you solved the puzzle. You're like, solved it? Who the fuck doesn't solve it? It's like, you just turn it a couple of times and then it does arrest itself. I mean, I suppose it makes sense that if you're the Cenobites, you want to take people to hell, etc. You probably would make your puzzle box quite easy. Now, there are two of the least erotic scenes ever committed to film in this. The first one, we have uh, when Julia goes to pick up the guy. Now, she's all dressed up in a really cool-looking power suit, brings the dude back to his house, and then he's standing in a grotty room upstairs with nothing in it in his pants. <laughs> he's like to himself, he's like, it's not ideal. <laughs> But you know, you'll get. figures some.
1: can't be choosers.
0: <laughs> and, and the other one is uh, Julian Larry sex scene, where during it, like we're meant to believe that Larry's just ah, oh, he's a he's a really great guy. The amount of times his wife says no during that sex scene is <laughs> very uncomfortable. And she doesn't just say no; she says, "I can't bear it." During the bit where Frank comes out, the to just skinning a wrap in the background. <laughs>
1: It's a busy scene. There's a lot happening in that scene. (laughs) She's trying to distract her husband from her brother-in-law, who's flaying a rat in the background. It's never explained why he's doing this. I I think it's (laughs) like Frank is trying to express himself. He's trying to say, I'm bored. Um, I believe that's what he's doing in that scene. Um, I know what you mean. It is a bit uncomfortable how often she sort of rebukes Larry and he doesn't take the hint.
0: Yeah, but Larry's like, uh, oh, I'm getting such mixed messages. I was like, how can you possibly get getting mixed messages? (laughs) She doesn't even kiss you goodbye at the dinner party, but she kisses everyone else goodbye. Like, no, it it was absolutely no indication of this film that she wants to fuck Larry.
1: And he's like, mixed messages. There's a sequence in when Julia is seducing the men, and Don review I've counted now, so it's three. Um, And one thing that I do love about this film is that it avoids being a slasher at every single opportunity because when it comes to julia taking out these men her weapon of choice is a hammer which <laughs> it just makes me laugh and there's a bit of i think intentional comedic editing with the second victim she takes this man round, and he's sort of all smug and he's like we won't be interrupted will we because I like to be careful. Immediate jump cut to him getting smacked across the head with a hammer. And it's like that that has to be punctuated just for comedic effect.
0: I feel a few little bits like that, like the boxing bit, where she's like, I've seen worse. <laughs> 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 uh, a couple of other f- quick things to to mention here. We haven't really come out of the Cenobite designs, and this is a Cenobites at their very best. Mm-hmm. Very distinctive look, very grotesque, really cool voicey. So what do we see? We've got got Butterball here, we've got obviously Pinhead, we've got the Chatterer, and uh, it's a woman called uh, Deep Throat, isn't she?
1: She, In the credits, she's just, quote unquote, female Cenobite, because the sexual side of things, apparently the American censors, all the violence they were fine with, but anything sexual they were not, so they were, I mean, in spirit, she's Deep Throat. (laughs) <laughs> but on paper, she's the female Cenobite.
0: Like It's very cool designs, mm-hmm. really good aesthetic. You can see why Pinhead became an icon, why they wanted him back for another one, even though he barely features in this. And in the book, I believe he's just the Cenobite priest, right? Mm-hmm. That's correct, yeah. And the other thing I want to say, as a bit of an issue with this movie, I've kind of implied this already, I find the ending really underwhelming. I like that the guy, the boyfriend, comes along and does absolutely fuck all. That really pleases me. <laughs> but at the same time, although with the second one you wouldn't know that, the flashback of the second implies Steve was quite a main character. But I think part of it is that the special effects of the time didn't really the con- allow them to do the concept justice as when Cursey's uh, defeating them with the box. The Cenobites don't seem particularly hard, and the thing is their destruction essentially revolves around a single button getting pushed.
1: I just want to say, I think about the. I mean, this will be about the the Hellraiser franchise as a whole, really. And I totally agree with what you're saying. I think this film didn't have the technology or the CGI to fully realize the universe of the story. It's an ambitious story. And this is particularly true, I would say, in the sequel, Hellraiser 2. And whereas, obviously, we do have the technology now. But the Hellraiser films, the budgets dropped even further, so they now they no longer have the budget to realise uh, their dreams. There, I noticed in the first one that there is there's fantastic, like Doug Bradley's voice in this is absolutely amazing, and he says the word when they meet Kirsty, and she's sort of she's a very talented negotiator. I have to say. Uh, she gets herself out of trouble quite nicely, but they're doing the negotiation, and Doug Bradley says maybe, maybe. He says maybe twice in a very threatening way. <laughs> maybe is not the most threatening word, so it's uh, hats off and congratulations to Doug Bradley for saying the word maybe threateningly. <laughs> there's there's great um, sort of implied relationship between the Cenobites here, where the female Cenobite and Pinhead mm-hmm. uh, they. They constantly sort of finish each other's sentences. They might mm. even finish each other's sandwiches. We don't know. <laughs> but they do finish each other's sentences. Like when, when the female Cenobite says, but if you cheat us, in that whispery voice she has, then we cut to Doug Bradley going, we'll tear your soul apart. It's brilliant cinema right there. The chatter has got the chattering teeth. Butterball has this weird sort of asthmatic hissing noise. And... Stomach growls going, or do like. And what I've noticed as well in this recent uh, watch through is that did you did you notice this sort of this yowling cat sort of strangulation yeah. noise? That that's the female Cenobite that that yeah. noise is attached to. So they all had their own sound effects. Whereas I think in a lot of the sequels now everybody's mute apart from Pinhead. But that sort of sound design for the
2: Cenobites, I like that. I think that's probably why they stood out so well I mean that's probably one of the longest scenes they're in in that hospital and it's such a powerful scene has a great impact as you say pretty much down to the way Doug Bradley delivers it Uh, and yeah it's terrifying and uh, again going back to the, the, the iconography of it all I suppose The character of Pinhead, I think, stayed with a lot of people just because it was so different and so terrifying back in the day. My first experience was seeing a poster for, it might have actually been Hellraiser 3 in the video shop back when I was a little kid. And, you know, your imagination runs away with you. But just seeing this guy with what looked like a load of nails hammered into his head at the time was just incredible. And even now, watching it, you're looking at the makeup thinking how much of a fantastic job they actually did with it as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: I mean, my exposure was my older brother used to have a, a postcard of Hellraiser 3. And that's the first time I ever saw a pinhead and just thought, I want to get to know this character. By the way, you see how cool a line is, no tears please, it's a waste mm. of good suffering. <laughs> he just has these great lines
1: doug bradley's pinhead gets all the best lines his dialogue's definitely by far the best and just to add to that as well i think with um she doesn't get many lines but the female cenobite i get the impression that she quite fancies Kirsty, because Kirsty's negotiating with them and she says i can like frank's escape to you i can give you frank and the female cenobite goes like in her, her voice, perhaps we
3: prefer you. Mm.
1: And I Ad- don't want to jump too far into this the sequel, and um, but she they run into Kirsty again and the female asks her specifically, Are you teasing us? Like do <laughs> you see what I mean? Oh that's cool. I yeah. think I get the impression that the but uh, Deep Throat quite likes Kirsty.
0: <laughs> I, I like to think of Deep Throat shagging pinhead on the side. I mean, admittedly, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think that the Cenobites are into monogamous relationships. <laughs> Just to say as
1: well about the costume design of the Cenobites and that they all have, like, the, the concept of these characters and they all have these designer wounds that they're all they're injured in some way, but they've, they've fashioned it in a, in a design mm. in that a lot of villains... A lot of villains seem to dish it out but they can't take it. Not the Cenobites.
0: (laughs) Aye, and in fact, when we come to the second one, which we will do in just a moment if we could carry on to this another half hour um, (laughs) something that I think uh, actually really helps these films is the concept of the Cenobites used to be human and we don't really get that until the second we find out who Pinhead was, but um, that's a rare instance where just having a bit more context actually makes Madame Sight scarier Something that I would not say about Michael Myers, for instance. We don't need to know anything about Michael Myers, but what we do get from from this is the Cenobites, they haven't always been this way. And I guess when we're watching Julia get more and more corrupt, that probably matches the sorts of corruption that we're seeing of these characters, kind of giving themselves to decadence and this uh, kind of losing themselves in this idea of pleasure. Basically... I love this film, and I'm glad for all three of us do. Are we giving this film five stars, guys? Yes. I would
2: say four and a half. <laughs> oh, well, I, I would give it's, this five stars. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant film, but the just the, the odd moment here and there just brings it down from perfect for me. I like to think you were just triggered by the homeless guy of the box who's looking just
0: like Rob Zombie.
1: <laughs> there's things in this film where there's like little details but i actually like the film despite them uh for instance when the the two delivery men show up and they're moving the mattress in now it might not be true but that's the only thing we the audience see them move mm. and <laughs> they've moved it into the porch and they're immediately asking
2: where the beer is at yes it's a of work. Ethic. Well, although there is a room full of boxes that Julia's going through at the time, so you know. Okay, the, the, that's true. Exactly Fair enough. Um, I just wanted to mention the the physicality of the Cenobites as well, particularly the Chatterer. Now, when they first, well, when Kirsty first encounters them, the way he grabs her and basically sticks his fingers in her mouth as well—that that's just—it it was horrible to watch. <laughs> it's, it's it's so strange but yeah just every time I see it it just makes me so uncomfortable his way he holds the back of her head as well Mm. two
1: fingers down and his chattering teeth are are right in her ear Uh, and it's that must be like you know that's like social distancing this is so intrusive (laughs) (laughs) can I just actually just before we move on from Hellraiser 1 there's one I think we need to just touch very quickly on two other beings the one that turns into the dragon skeleton at the very end i don't, I don't really know what we could say about that but there's also the sort of upside down scorpion creature that uh, oh
0: yeah does, does it have a name
1: it actually does but i don't like it it's, <laughs> it's apparently it's called the engineer now this thing does not look like it's smart enough to be an engineer of anything other than halitosis.
0: I reckon it's because you can see the fucking crane it's on. (laughs) That's
3: (laughs) true.
1: The name engineer gets reworked into Pinhead's name in Hellraiser 5 and is then never mentioned again. So there's a little bit of history with the word engineer there. But yeah, that creature that we see, who plays as, because all of the Cenobites are actually taken care of and then it turns up at the very end like it's it's the boss which is i, I will say the order in which the setabytes are dispatched it, i think it's reverse order from what it should be because pinhead's the first one to go yeah And now, did anyone else notice when the house is falling apart and chatterer stood there but there's a wedding veil that, yeah like what is that about <laughs> If I think
0: if I I was thinking about this with regards to Kirsty's dream where you've got the white dress and the blood. I think what's meant to be is like a, an idea of the institution of marriage potentially being corrupting, because you think about like the white dress, oh blood, guts, gore, and then for like ah yes, you love your partner, but one day they're a fucking chatterer. Like I reckon that's what he's trying to do, <laughs> but I could be totally off.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and on the blood and Gore, I just it, it just got to say how remarkable that scene of Frank's regeneration is. Absolutely yeah. incredible! Oh, it's god! Disgusting, absolutely. nauseating, and fantastic. I can watch it over and over again. Uh, it's just one of the most astonishing bits of movie making I think I've ever seen. The,
1: absolutely, it, it does. It, the the sound effects that go with it and. Christopher Young's music in that Mm. scene as well, really, because it's some sort of like weird demonic waltz. Mm, Absolutely. Um, It's, yeah, it's really well done.
0: I remember uh, watching, this, watching this with Alistair when you made a point about the intro music that it builds to a climax when we have the, uh, the special effects artist, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to the name of the film.
1: I have this in my notes, but I was going to introduce it in Hellraiser 3. The reason being is that in Hellraiser 3, every musical score is hit precisely, uh, let's just say every nail is hit on the head, if you will. Yeah. Uh, in in this one, yeah, they completely miss the mark with that uh, because it's, it's the quiet music. Hellraiser comes up but then the music swells to Bob Keen, Bob Keen, makeup and effects designer.
0: We fucking earned it. <laughs> anyway, so that is Hellraiser Part 1. Two of us are giving us five stars. The fact that Jim is not giving us five stars makes me wonder why he's going to give for the rest of the movies. Folks, let's move on to Hellraiser number two.
3: The Vision. Is renewed. The power is reawakened. The fear is reborn because they have returned. Time to play. Hellbound. Hellraiser 2. Brace yourself.
0: Hellraiser 2. Hellbound. Made one year later. We have ourselves a much bigger budget, and it's fully able to commit to this concept of hell. Guys, what did you make of this movie? I'm
2: going to start with yourself, Jim. I was genuinely impressed. Uh, Obviously, sequels tend to diminish, especially what when it comes to horror. But the, the scale and the scope of the whole film, even though it clearly is way ahead of its time in terms of what they wanted to achieve with it, uh, I, every time I watch it, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with just how good it looks, how well the story comes across. And just the general concept of hell in in this film is really interesting. I, I think you've got the huge... Map paintings that we see of the labyrinth of hell Leviathan hmm. uh, the, the various uh, parts of hell we see like uh, is, is it uh, the young girl, the young new girl she ends up in like a circus a fun fair sort of area uh, again that, that the map paintings for that are just wonderful and although it's obvious it's a, a 2D image there's just something about them that really it invokes that sense of scale. Uh, just but from the start, it does seem a bit ropey. I, you've got the I do the, the, the acting's a bit questionable. It goes from one end of the scale to the other, particularly with Doctor Chenard and uh, his pre-Garth Marenghi dark place <laughs> style. <laughs> um, it just but, but you, you get used to it and it becomes endearing. It's, it, it's really is something. But I have to say that the very opening, you've got that New World Pictures logo. Something warm and fuzzy about that, despite what we're about to watch. There's <laughs> <laughs> just something wonderful about seeing that. And then you've got uh, Christopher Young's score coming in again. But this time, you know, it, it sets the tone yet again. Same... Same sound, same sort of tune, but it's much more bombastic, much more epic in scale, letting us know that this is going to be a bigger film. Uh, And it is. And for a little bit, yeah, we're in a different place, but it does feel like it's retreading the same ground as the original for probably, say, the first 20, 30 minutes. But Hmm. then as the Cenobites appear again, we go into hell, it becomes its very own... Different sort of film, and from there, that's where it really gets interesting. Particularly when Dr. Chanard becomes a Cenobite himself, he's been on this massive quest. It seems from everything we see in his office to you know he he knows about the the puzzle box, the Cenobite. He wants to get into this, and he goes all the way basically. And his Cenobite is fucking horrible. Like everything from the, the costume, the makeup, to even the sound. You've got that drill going in the back of his head and his scream that he uses over and over again. And that phallic shaft. That oh, that fuck but they, they don't even try and disguise <laughs> about things of cork, right? And uh, uh, yeah, everything leading to that moment is is great. As I say, it starts off quite ropey, but it just, when it beds in, it's it's fantastic.
0: I find this one... Um, I used to really like it. They still generally do, but I think it's very inferior to the first. I think the issues that I have with this... the The Conceptually, it's interesting. Hell, and it looks amazing. Completely agree with you on that. I think from a storytelling perspective, I don't warm to uh, the girl Tiffany as a character. As a baddie, I think Do- Dr. chenard aside from a psychologist, are literally always villains in these things. I just hate that he becomes the kind of Mr. Freeze-style bad guy who just speaks in shit puns. <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> I'm taking I'm over this operation. <laughs> like, I just felt like, fuck off, pal. Like He just comes across as a dick. Um, yeah. I didn't really find the storytelling in it hugely engaging, and that irritated me. Like The character motivations it makes sense eventually when we find out why Julia's trying to go back to hell but it doesn't make sense from the story she presents as to why she'd possibly want to go back there i quite enjoy the twist of this is by the way for anyone who's listening yeah we're doing fucking spoilers for the whole thing um, <laughs> with uh, it being frank rather than larry that in itself was quite a neat twist but i just thought the third act was getting so busy that none of the plot beats really got to breathe. You go, okay, so for our baddies right now, we have Julia, we have Pinhead, we have the other Cenobites, we have Frank, and now we've got the Doctor on top of it here, right? And it just kind of... And then Leviathan, I just thought, like, the world building in it, it looked very nice, but I don't think there was really a whole lot of coherence to what every aspect of it was doing. And storyline-wise, I just thought the film kind of fell apart if longer it went on. It looked amazing, but it just wasn't a very satisfying piece of storytelling. That's my harsh opinion. What about yourself, Alistair? Are you a big fan of this?
3: Yeah,
1: you know, I think I'm in the same camp as yourself on this one, David. I would normally and always have rated this film higher than three. But on this current rewatch, I felt, I don't know, with two, it just wasn't quite what I remembered it being. And the the flaws I mainly have with it are or the issues I have with it do stem from the early aspects of the story. So the hell, hell looks amazing, by the way. I, I do want to say that because it's tough to talk about one of these films without mentioning the other one. I have to, have to detract back to Hellraiser 1 briefly when Kirsty opens the box and she, there's clearly this corridor opens up that has crying baby sound effect in it. She chooses to walk down this corridor <laughs> and... Meets the upside down scorpion beastie. Now that little corridor is so beautifully elaborated on in the sequel. We see more of hell. We see that there is this M. C. Escher painting. This it is a labyrinthine of the stories and staircases that lead nowhere, and it, it beautifully connects this film with the first one. Um, I think I have issues with. Even though Julie is supposed to be the main villain in this one, and apparently the reason she was allowed to be brought back was Leviathan has a new plan. We, we never find out what that is. But um, this film has one of the most gruesome scenes in it in the entire Hellraiser franchise. And that's with the, the mentally, the patient who uh, is handed the scalpel because he thinks his body is covered in maggots and he keeps crying mm. out, get them off me, get them off me. And that's a tough scene to watch. And I have had a movie night with friends around. And after that scene, there was someone who got up and left. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) don't blame you, Because obviously that resurrects Julia. And then we have two people who have no skin flopping and flailing and all around each other. and Oh, and this is another thing I have in my notes, by the way. There, there's a rule. It's never mentioned in dialogue, but there's a rule in these films where if you've been brought back from a Cenobite trap, you put your fingers into the back of someone's neck and then with some straw sound effects, you suck mm-hmm. the blood out of them. <laughs> that's that's what happens. By the way, this is something else. I, it's a, maybe it's a nitpick, but it's um, for one and two to run a bit more smoothly. We should have actually seen Julia go up to the bedroom, try and activate the uh, the box and then had the Cenobites uh, do their thing to her. We don't see that. We see the empirical evidence and that Kirsty grabs the box from Julia's corpse. But we don't see that part happening. And I always wonder, is this like like the ring where like, several schoolchildren all died on the exact same time and the same night? Because I always imagine uh, Samara's climbing out of seven television sets all at the same time. Mm. Do the Cenobites also do this multiple thing in different spaces at once? We're following Kirstie because she says Frank's gone missing. Oh, but wait, somebody else has opened the box. Hold on a sec. We've got to go take this call. You know, <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it that type of thing?
0: Yeah, because we get in this one, we see multiple boxes. And that was something that was a cool bit of world building. Mm-hmm. I also liked the idea of how, you know, I just said earlier, Jim, everyone's got their own personal hell. Like, that is a really neat touch in it. I didn't like the way that the rules seem to change where the Cenobites say, uh, well, it's, uh, it's not hands, it's that call us, it's desire. That's like, hold on. Now we're ditching the moral relativism aspect of the first one, which mm-hmm. we do return to in the third one, in order for them to go, no, no, I tell you what. Tiffany, nothing to do with her. Mm. She may have opened the box, but it was for you. And you're like, I thought they were angels to some, demons to others. And I didn't think they gave a shit about this sort of thing. So it seemed like a very early time
2: to ditch a real that they then returned to in part three. Yeah, yeah um, for, for everything I like about it, this is probably the most cut and short narratively. It does feel like a lot of what we're seeing is either... You know, just chopped straight out of the script, or they're, they're just cutting and pasting ideas together just to see what sticks, really. Like a lot of, I mean, from the very beginning, we see the police at uh, Larry and Julia's house, but didn't that burn down at the end of the first one? <laughs> and, I will also add it's, sure. it's not the same yeah. set. Yeah. And, you know, they get the mattress that Julia is on. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure everything perished
3: <laughs>
2: in a fire.
0: Thinking about
2: it as a sequel, because
0: this is coming out at a time when uh, you know, obviously with VHS you surround people might own the first one, but I like that it is a sequel where you do basically have to have seen the first one to really appreciate this. Mm. It is building on the relationships that were established. We have a lot of quotes, the kind of uh, intertextual exchanges like Julia now saying come to mummy I have such sights yeah. to show you and my favourite nothing personal babe when she out Frank that
2: was <laughs> that, a good bit was, yeah I like that that was, that was a nice bit of uh, vengeance there but yeah we, we do see Julia taking on Frank's role and by the way, Pinhead's line with this one about
0: like you had in the first one, your your tears are waste so of good suffering. Here we have, your suffering will be legendary even in hell. What a fucking line! <laughs> like if you're if you're a Doug Bradley, how much would you just love to say that? I
1: have to say he gets all the lines, and he, he even says to Kirsty, "Run, explore. We have centuries to know the things that make you whimper." <laughs> He's just he loves all those lines the um i would actually say i've got an issue in this film in terms of the villains dialogue and i'm gonna i'm gonna create a new term quote-unquote villains dialogue so villains don't get as much screen time as the heroes and you have to establish a lot more story a lot more quickly you just watch any of the bond films or i think ultron in age of ultron is a great example of this where you have to establish what the motivations are of the villain what their um, relationships with other semi-villains are you have to establish all of that much more quickly so villain scenes usually tend to be very dynamic and fast-paced and i have to say i found that in this film the dialogue with when dr chenard resurrects julia and the two of them are quite stumped for conversation like she says well and then he says, well, <laughs> and, and then like, for instance, it could be one of those eighties moments where at first she puts on a white sort of suit well, a suit jacket and trousers. Then she tries on a light blue dress. If she put on a third outfit, this is one of those eighties uh, <laughs> costume change montages it was just—it was so <laughs> oddly done, and with the the slow bandaging her up, and yeah, all of this uh, time not when you know they're not talking to each other, and when they got when they got the girl Tiffany, uh, they got her to play around with the lament configuration, and he like Doctor Chenard says uh, she's going to do it. Julia says she certainly is, and then <laughs> they open it up, and then it's like here they come. They certainly are. I was like, you two, they're both great actors. They are great actors. But they had nothing to work with. <laughs> they were weaving straw from straw in their seeds together.
0: <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Because, like, in the first, she sells me absolute hell out of seeing Frank's corpse. Like, that scene, brilliant, right? She can fucking act. And, yeah, in this, she's got very little to work with. Like, like I said, until they reveal her motivation, which is a fucking twist. He her character doesn't really make any sense. No. Like, you go, oh, hell's absolutely awful. Can't wait to go back. Like, at least Frank <laughs> had the kind of good sense in the first one to be like, hell's shit. I'm definitely not going back. Get me some bodies. Mm-hmm. I do quite like they have this uh, recurring motif in the films of people being seduced by corpses.
1: Yeah, I wasn't a touch on that. There's, there's, thing, there's two things, all right, Hellraiser's one, two, three, recurring things of seduction and resurrection. And it doesn't really paint it doesn't put people who might consider themselves as seducers in a great light. Because we're essentially looking at Frank, Julia, and JP monroe Um in terms of resurrection, it's Frank, then Julia, then Pinhead. Um in the second film, I'll get back to the second film. What I was gonna say is I liked some of the location designs. The hospital looks amazing. The we see Dr. chenard's own house. It looks, it looks modern, even by today's standards. It looks very modern, very nice. Like, I could live there, except without Julia and all her bodies. <laughs> and why I didn't get was that... Now, I, I want to call this another sort of montage, where wherever you're in, quote-unquote, an insane asylum, there's always a montage of a character walking down a hallway, looking in various windows and seeing a different crazy person inside there and we get that in this film as well and that does pay off on this occasion but how industrial like is the lower ground
2: of this uh, hospital the the elevator actually says maintenance on there doesn't it so are those people there off the books Ah.
0: Oh, that's an interesting. Or maybe we just ran out of space. Either way, <laughs> either way that's quite a good sure. world building.
2: Uh, it's, yeah. I quite like that. I didn't think of that.
3: Yeah,
2: I'm gonna go with that. Actually, I like mm-hmm. that because like, yeah. it. I mean, those studios where they're clearly the sets are built are fantastic. but you know along with everything else in the film, aesthetically is is brilliant. Mm-hmm. But that that in particular. I think, is just another depiction of hell, I suppose. You know, he's gone down to the bottom, to the maintenance level. You've got steam coming out of those grotty pipes, and every window we look in, there's another person in anguish in their own little hell. That's it, are they in their own little hell, that's, that's... Oh, well done, Jim. That's a great, <laughs> great observation.
3: I'm going
1: to have to re-analyse my uh, rating of this film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I won't, but...
1: <laughs> With hospital
0: hospital stuff, I enjoyed the whole, you know, the I'm in hell, help me moment at the beginning was really fucking chilling. Um, And in fact, the the visual special effects and the makeup were even more impressive than the first one. Something that kind of fucks me off about uh, genre snobbery... It's the way that you just know whatever one of the best makeup effects that year <laughs> will not have been as good as this, right? On a the budget, they do such a good job. And just like the first one, it's economic filmmaking, it's practical hmm. effects, looks st- stunning. And like where we have hell itself, you know, we're seeing imagery like a fetus of its mouth stitched shut, which shows up again in the next one we have got blood on the chest with drawers, with sheets on the stone beds where you've got lots and lots of blood and the corpses and stuff. The whole carnival of the grotesque. Love it. The, the stone walls are very clearly fake when someone gets pushed into them and the whole thing fucking wobbles. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I'm willing to overlook that. I will say, though, hell, surprisingly easy to get out of. Yeah. <laughs> Like that end bit where Kirsty and Tiffany are like, are like, all right, we're going to run. Just find your way back out of hell, and you've got like the Cenobites shooting like stormtroopers and missing them. (laughs) And we just end up straight back in hospital. I was like, oh, hang on, hang on. I suppose we used the word labyrinth earlier, and a lot of people may not know why a labyrinth and a maze are different. But with a labyrinth, there's only a single pathway. So, yes, maybe it is
2: actually a labyrinth after all. That is the most bourgeois joke of this show. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, One thing we haven't really uh, gone over is the Cenobites in this, really. Again, they feel kind of tacked on. It's as if we're making a Hellraiser film, but we need these guys in it again because they're they're the big draw, so what can we do with it? It, Even uh, as we see them take their original human forms, everything just kind of feels like, well, well, why? (laughs) It's, I know like it's to show that they were people once and, you know, there's a whole story behind them, but the the way it's happening, as if it's a kind of distraction for the new China Cenobite to get them instead of the girls, it just feels a bit pointless. Why? Why are they suddenly helping these? Because there's this new guy in town. Is he? Is he muscling in on their patch? Is he going to take their contracts from them or something? Like it, it did feel a bit odd. Yeah,
1: I think yeah. with this film, I think I know that with certainly with films one and two, they didn't know that Pinhead was the big draw. They did know that by film three, and you can see that change in course quite clearly. The intention was actually have Julia be the primary antagonist of the series. I do note that after her experience working on the first film, she wanted to come back for a sequel. After working on the sequel, she didn't come back for any more. So Claire Higgins (laughs) knew when to quit. The the Cenobites get shortchanged in this film quite badly. Right, so Tiffany opens the puzzle box. The Cenobites show up and then don't do the thing they're supposed to do. Then they sort of nuisance Kirsty for a scene, and then they appear in another scene and die.
3: Mm.
1: I, that's that is essentially it um the we're giving a lot of weight and heavy intro to the chenard cenobite who he has some great lines by the way uh, it's you have your whole lives behind you now <laughs> that's that's a great <laughs> line that's a great line do you know what i did put down in my notes however um i put dr chenard stupid death and I spelt stupid, S-T-O-O-P-I-D. <laughs> his death yeah, it, is
2: so stupid. It, it did seem to just happen, didn't it? Like, he got his tentacles stuck in the floor and he was straining that hard his head <laughs> fell off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's literally how it happened, Jim. That is literally how it happened. But we have
0: this really funny moment, though, right, where we do the reveal of uh, Julia. Julia's actually wearing the skin wearing yeah. the skin suit. But I love the idea that he's just about to, about to kill Tiffany and then has to stop to make out of his missus <laughs> like, that, is, that is the pleasure principle entirely
2: yeah, I, I guess you've, you've got to buy into the underpinning essence of all of these is, is lust getting the, the most pleasurable experience you can mm. find isn't it really that's, that's like, obviously we're going to move on to part three soon but that seems to be what awakens the Cenobites in Part Three is when JP's actually, you know absolutely going to town on that woman, <laughs> and
3: yeah, as that's it a good all point.
2: comes to a close, Pinhead wakes up. So, like, I, I take from that is, you know, the people after the the, the the best pleasure they can find is is the driving force behind all of this, and that's why Shannon gets so easily distracted when Julia appears again.
3: Like, and, what a, uh, and maybe
2: that's why she didn't turn up for Part Three after having to get off with that monkey bastard for (laughs) (laughs) I might add as well I think with the writers
1: had written themselves into a corner in that scene uh, because essentially you've got here a Cenobite powerful enough to take on and defeat four of his peers Mm. and he's now fighting two girls who are unarmed and do not possess any Cenobite abilities at all so how do they get out of this and they come out with it, and they, uh yeah, stupid. Yeah, his death was stupid. Um, his big dick rips his, rips his
2: head off. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I also want to point out, I think, apparently, this is not in this film, but this is one of those sort of, if you're a fan of Hellraiser like I am, you, you learn these little details, and the apparently with the Chynard Cenobite, you know the big phallic tentacle monster that comes into the back of his head? Mm-hmm. Do you remember how he holds his hands out, and then these yeah. sort of tentacles come out of his palms? That's coming from the big tentacle that's uh, attached to the back of his head. Mm. Mm. Uh, so that's all linked all the way through, apparently.
2: I did like the foreshadowing when we first see Channing. Mm-hmm. You've got him monologuing about, you know, exploring the mind and its labyrinth, and he's got that drill before he goes into that woman's head. And, yeah, basically is literal foreshadowing right there because that is exactly what happens to him Mm. an hour later and that patient Ah. by the way was still conscious
1: when Mm. he was drilling into her head
0: yeah, that, I would say we're watching going again. Psychologists, we're always villains. Um, I, I had Jim, a joke about Jim this. Jim breaking this film open.
1: <laughs> I had a joke about this where I wanted to make uh, Dr. Chenard, I wanted to call him a criminal psychologist.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> he is a psychologist
0: who also happens to be a criminal. Ah, oh, brilliant. Fantastic. Um <laughs> Dr. Shnard, it's an in this one, I said earlier, I thought he was just a little bit too Mr. Freeze for me. I also reckon the whole plot revolves around this really stupid coincidence where he just so happens to work at work in a hospital where the only other person who has an of this plot is a patient. I was like, what if she'd been transferred? It's like if she I, lived a mile down
2: the road. <laughs> yeah. I did question that but then you see her in her own private hell and it, I, I i take it from that we see chenard basically killing her mother to take her away and basically work on his puzzle boxes he, he's seen what mm. she's obsessed with and the only way she kind of communicates so he's like well yeah do, you know do and he's he's actually killed her mother off from what is implied in that Hall of Mirrors section, is it? Well, we're talking about, about Kirsty, not Tiffany. Oh, apologies, sorry. But yeah,
0: <laughs> with, with, with Tiffany, Tiffany doesn't really need to be in this film at all. I found her a really dull inclusion. For mm. like, we have her in here because she can solve the puzzle <laughs> yeah. box. Like, you don't that need a convenient.
1: specialist. <laughs> I, no, and also I think the problem with when you introduce a character that is their one trait is their mute, you know that at some point they're going to speak And her first words are, oh shit, at the sight of Chenard, And I can't help but think, now, right now, (laughs) looking at Dr. (laughs) Chenard, that's the thing that makes you speak after you've just run from help
0: itself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, I will say, as much as I think the storytelling of this one is inferior, the iconography is even cooler than it was in the first film. I, uh, I completely agree with you, Alistair, that what we see in the first film is a corridor, and here we see a world, and they build on that corridor aesthetic so well. I, I'm i personally quite... We'll go into the upcoming one at the end of this show a bit, but I, one of the reasons I'm quite optimistic is I think that now they have the technology to be able to make this look really cool, provided there's someone working on it who's still a fan of... Um, Uh, He's still a fan of practical effects but using the CG enhancements as opposed to just making the whole thing look CGI which will piss me off no end.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Have you guys got more of it you want to talk about with this movie? I I just wanted to mention Frank's own private hell. That Mm -hmm. was a neat little scene where you've Uh, At first, it was a bit weird. You've got those tables, uh, sorry, those beds coming out from those little archways with women, like, kind of gyrating under the blankets, and Kirsty takes away the blanket and the woman disappears, and then we see Frank explaining that this is his hell. You know, all the the things he covets are there, but he can't do anything about it. I just thought that was a neat bit of his own little punishment. I was kind of a bit, because Tiffany's hell
1: is obviously the the fetus with the sewed mouth shut, the parental abandonment. Kirstie's got a similar one where she looks at a picture and says, Mommy, that's the first time you see Mm. the mother. And then blood comes out of it and then she gets tormented by the Cenobites. So they're clearly part of her own personal hell as well as they would be by that point. I found that Frank's kind of getting off a bit. I mean, his his hell is he's just being cock-teased for eternity. <laughs> I mean, he deserves worse than that. But th- then his whole hell gets set on fire, and as, I think this comes down to the dream logic thing. Uh, it, his hell gets set on fire, and then his skin falls off. <laughs> I, well,
0: what happens when you just, die in hell?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you get but relocated. Yeah another part
2: of if, hell. If he was a bit of a narcissist as well, because in the first film, you've got all those photos of him posing with those naked women and you know, doing certain things with him. So for him to lose all of his skin, perhaps that's another punishment. It's, yeah.
1: a, it's a circumcision that went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a wee
0: question about this private hell thing, right? So do we take hell and this? It's, it's a physical location, right? Any, like... What we have here is Kirsty can essentially visit Frank's so hell. She can essentially visit uh, Julia's hell. But does this mean that for the many, many billions of people that would have died and ended up in this hell, everyone's got a separate section? Or would this be an element of connectedness that essentially um, people have like, a network of hells they can
2: visit based upon who's in their life? Well, I guess looking at it from Kirsty's point of view, she's not actually dead.
0: Oh, yeah, but she's still she, able to ru- able to run inside it and find them pretty uh, pretty easily.
1: It's sort of implied that, like, she can run and explore, as can Tiffany, Chenard and Julia, but it is implied that Frank is trapped in his own corner of hell. Like, he can't leave that room. That's, mm-hmm. that's how it came yeah, across yeah, to yeah, me.
2: That, that's right, because, yeah, basically, Frank is the only one who resides there. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well... Uh, I know you mean following, yeah. following Julia's resurrection by the mattress, and
0: anyway. yeah, I, I do like it very. Like the ma- the, the blood of the hand first time, the mattress this time. If next one we just get mouse. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, one other thing I want to mention about the aesthetic. I really like the use of the rapid cuts and stuff. It gave the whole thing a very nice disorienting kind of feel for it, and again, it just it frustrated me. That the storytelling wasn't as tight as it was first time because mm. there's so many positive aspects of this film but you know as a star rating for this one uh, uh, I've enjoyed talking about this, I've, I almost want to give it four stars, and between that and three and a half, fuck it let's give it four, you know what <laughs> Yeah, it, it, i say it's inferior but you know what, I've enjoyed talking about it there's a lot of virtues to it, there's a lot of so I think allow it to overcome some of its storytelling weaknesses yeah fuck it four, four stars I might regret that later <laughs> because yeah. I will have to give part three four stars to <laughs> you
2: yeah I, I would give it four stars as well on the surface it, it doesn't look quite as good as the original but there, there's a lot there and I did if, well if you'd have asked me six months ago I might have even said I liked it better than the original but yeah definitely four stars a lot of people do like
0: it better than the original and uh, Alistair what about yourself what's your star rating for this one three, three. three. you had the, ball, the balls to go there
1: three <laughs> um, it, there's, there's a lot of great stuff in this one um, but the nitpicks are you know like uh, the female Cenobite's neck they are gaping wounds and there's just too many uh, for me in this film. Like, there's no one character that you can point at and say, that person makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we didn't even actually talk about the boyfriend for the film, who's... Yeah, he, that's true. He's from... Oh, fuck, yeah. He's from the Aliens franchise. He plays, mm-hmm. uh, I think, Lieutenant... Uh, Goldson, Gorman, was it? Gorman. Gorman, that's it. And he... It's just a, like... Kirsty doesn't even break up with the previous boyfriend <laughs> but he's taking her to Dr. Chenard's house so they're running hand in hand um, Kirsty, by the way ha- in every film she appears and she has a different boyfriend and there's a very high mortality rate amongst them <laughs> um, the Julius oh
0: that's a wee spoiler because yeah Jim hasn't seen the sequel she'll come back at some point Jim
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh wait till you get to six Um, Anyway, me and David fundamentally disagree on that film. (laughs) I think in this film, there's no one character that you can point at and say that person's journey in this film makes sense. And what does annoy me about this film is that they hadn't yet quite grasped, no, the Cenobites and Pinhead in particular, they are the draw. And they kill them off, trying to replace them with something that they think is going to be better, but then give him an even dumber death. Um, so, I mean, Hellraiser 3 is what it is, but it does pick up right from where the previous film leads off. And I think this might be a good segue in that the Pillar of Souls comes up, and the two removals men are the same yes.
2: two removals um, men from the first film. Yeah, that cameo is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. uh, he's, he's, for some reason, walking right down at the mattress with the hooks on there, and he gets... Yeah dragged in up to his ass, doesn't he? That, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's
3: a fun uh, moment. Like yeah. If
0: I was to say, uh, you know what, Alistair, you've convinced me. I'm, bringing, I'm going down to three and a half. For this one. <laughs> I'm very, I've always you're, you're,
1: you're half right, convinced point,
0: the, you. Yeah, the, the point that you made there, because uh, it's between three and a half and four, and four hours. part of me was like, it's better than the sum of its parts. But then I think about that, your point about there's no character for whom the journey just makes you go, yes, and yeah, which is totally not the case with the first movie. The first movie, small, intimate, character based, really good storytelling. You could even do the first one on stage to stage for the most part. And this one, no. It doesn't it like it wows you with a good aesthetic, but at the same time I just don't think the I just don't think the drama's fair, I think it's too cluttered, and I really wish that the bad guy's dialogue was almost completely removed from the film. <laughs>
1: You see, we disagree on that. I quite like some of Chouinard's, uh like, okay, I'll, I'll have to say this, because I could talk about these films all day long. The Chenard, he, like, he says, I've taken over this operation. By the way, there's a scene where he busts into the hospital, and all of the patients have a puzzle box yeah. that has hooks in it. Who's giving these patients the puzzle box? <laughs> so... He bursts in, and he's like, I recommend amputation. Now, you know that scream that he does? Mm. He goes, something to that effect. Uh, that was a poor imitation, I'm sure. But <laughs> uh, he does that a lot in, when he's in Cenobite form, and there's a bit of unintentional comedy with me where you hear him crystal clear doing that scream in the room. Kirsty and Tiffany run into the hallway and run past, like, next to the room. So then you hear him through the wall, and it's a much more dulled scream. <laughs> I don't know why I find that funny. I just do because it, it sort of removes chenard's threat value there a little bit. <laughs> but um, he was... And certainly the stop-motion tentacles that came out of his hand, I, I did like them as well. But, uh, and also that one line actually did stick with me in this film about Dr. chenard As soon as he comes out of that, once he's been cenobited and he or senna bitten whatever you would say he comes out and he's he's now looking he's literally looking at the world with new eyes and he says and to think i hesitated that that line stuck with me actually that did stick with me
2: is it four stars now no
3: (laughs) no
0: All the things I value most in film, it almost always comes down to characterization and story, and it's just not quite got it. Uh, Now, let's see if number three has it, folks. We're going to move on to Hellraiser Three: Hell on Earth.
3: Clive Barker showed you his vision of a private hell. Hellraiser 2, he took you on a journey inside the Inferno. Now, the terror returns in mankind's final confrontation with evil.
0: free hell on earth it's now in 1992 where we have just about the most 90s aesthetic imaginable with bad boy jp in his leather jacket his greaser style cigarettes and his 90s hair metal bands playing in what looks like the shitest nightclub in the entire world the boiler room folks this is hell on earth it's a film about tight stories not tight skirts what did you guys think of this movie? Alistair, I'm gonna start with yourself.
1: Okay. I enjoyed this more on the uh the rewatch. Um I, I think my initial issues with it is that it's um the spirit or the soul of the first two movies is not here, really. This is it's been possessed by youth, uh sex, drums and rock and roll, if you will. This is <laughs> very much uh it's much. It's definitely firmly an American movie, this one, and I did enjoy it this time round. It's more schlocky than its predecessors, but it's fully embracing that schlock. It's not shying away from it mm-hmm. at all. It's leaning into it, and I think that's to the film's strength and... Um, we get in. I do have an issue with this film in term. If we look at Hellraisers one, two, three as a trilogy, got an issue with this film in that we're introduced to reporter Joey, and I hobo is she Terry? I don't know what her job is, but <laughs> remember from a hobo club?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Terry?
0: Yeah, yeah, she is almost a voice, I don't know if it's my uh, uh-huh. occupation because we get to she she. Implies with her backing story, but she just stays if other people like she yeah. like hangs out with her couches and stuff, you know, she'll be with friends. Lived with JP at some point, who's a
1: Yeah, <laughs> an interesting dad. character. But my issue with this film is that the two lead female characters of this should not have been new characters at all. They should have been Kirsty and Tiffany. And my reasoning for mm. that is basically that. Tiffany is someone who was finding missing parts of herself, like her ability to speak, her lost memory, lost history. Uh, she is someone that I would say is naive enough to fall for J.P. Monroe. Kirsty, by the way, has got unresolved daddy issues, which and this is another thing about Hellraiser 2. Kirsty has daddy issues. They never get resolved. And in this film, we have a lead protagonist in Joey, who clearly has daddy issues, a father who died. Um, it just seems to me that this should have been Kirsty and Tiffany's story and not totally new characters. Uh, but that's just a sort of personal thing for me. I think, like, I'm a completionist. of what I would like to see those characters reach the end of this film instead of being introduced to these new characters who I don't care about as much.
0: See, I'm going to disagree. For me, I absolutely loved... Joey and Terry as characters, and I thought their sisterhood was really good fun to watch. Admittedly, they didn't, re- we didn't really see them bond as much because they were always sort of introduced as, as, as opposites. You know, one of them's all street smart and street wise, and the other one's like this sort of well to do journalist with this ridiculously fake-looking New York skyline (laughs) outside your apartment. (laughs) But, like, I just find their interactions a whole load of fun. I like the kind of caper element. Uh, I loved seeing Terry trying to cook breakfast for her and things. Such a liability. I like just seeing Terry, the bit where she's hanging out of the house, reading this big book about battles, whilst at the same time, like...
1: Battles from the 20th century.
0: Yeah, battles from the 20th century. (laughs) it was just written in the 20th century, so fair enough. But, but yeah, it's modern history, but yeah.
1: It didn't seem like, first of all, it didn't look like a book that Terry would read. but no, that's also why it was didn't fun. look like a book that Joey would own. <laughs>
0: And then she's sitting there, reading this book with a lollipop, which is a strange sort of like, ah, mm. oh, yeah, it's reading history, but we're also trying to make her look like a kid. She's a lollipop and a stuffed toy beside her. Like, she just comes across as absolutely rad in the film. I was a big fan of Terry. Always, like, <laughs> uh, I was so upset when, when uh, she died in it. I was like, she's the best part. I I, I not watched an entire spin-off series of her and Joey.
1: I completely hated her character, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to tell you why. She falls for every single manipulation <laughs> thrown her way, no matter how stupid, she falls for it. And at the end of the one, we're I'm, I'm doing spoilers, she releases Pinhead. I mean, essentially, if this was Battlestar Galactica, Terry would be Gaius Baltar.
0: But at the same time, right, it, it contextualizes this she's had a pretty tough life. That's true. That's like, true. Pinhead's seduction over works, I reckon. He's like, Uh, why would you want to go back out there? We've got this whole bit where they're talking about dreams and she's talking about how she doesn't have any dreams, which ends up acting as a metaphor for the fact that she doesn't really have any hopes or aspirations. She's just been Hmm. shat upon her entire life by cunts like JP and Pinhead. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, I, 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 I thought it was a real shame what happened to her character. I thought that was really well done. By far the best, the most successful part of this film.
2: She was a bit of a trailblazer as well, if you ask me. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but all of her outfits were a staple of late 90s girl bands. <laughs> now, this is from 1992. And every video from about 1997 to early 2000s, pretty much every girl band would have been wearing those outfits. Uh, she's, uh, she's like two girls in one.
1: <laughs> I never thought that's so true. She's Avril Lavigne.
2: It's like back in '92. Any other film with that sort of cast that have been wearing, I don't know, flannel shirts, jeans, big boots or whatever, you know, totally going for that Seattle vibe. But no, she's from the future. She's from seven years in the future, bringing the Spice Girls to the early 1990s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I actually follow uh, an Instagram account called Night Openings, which show you photos from film premieres from like the 90s and 80s. And a lot of women in that, it, like the late 90s era, every single one of them would have looked like that. It's incredible how, uh, uh, how, you know, how much of a trailblazer Terry's outfits actually were. You know, I don't know why it occurred to me, but yeah, like <laughs> just thinking this is early 90s and she is dressed like someone Would not in any of a film you've seen from this era. See,
0: we fucking love you, Terry. (laughs) (laughs) Not all of us. (laughs) Two of us love you. Now, let's talk about JP. We all hate JP, right? The guy who smokes
1: while shagging. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is a film where James Bond, Pierce Brosnan needed to turn up, punch him in the face, and that's a filthy habit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh... He was like a really skeevy Bobby Briggs. I, I just had that kind of vibe from him, like the kind of rebellious. Like I don't know, he seemed a bit young to be like this entrepreneurial, super rich guy. But is it the sort of yuppie thing? Like we've had Terry. You know, prophesizing fashion in the future, but we've got this film then taking from the past where you've got all these young Wall Street guys, but this is now the early nineties. So yeah, I, I kind of get a, a big Bobby Briggs vibe from him, but
1: I think you know, he, uh, he's with, got money <laughs> with JP Monroe's entrepreneurialism. Essentially, it's kill your own parents and inherit all the stuff. Yeah, well, there is That's, that. his, <laughs> <laughs> that's his business model. And it's also... The, I, I mean, we'll have to hit on the boiler, because, I, mean, I mean, I think the boiler room is as much a character in this movie as anything else is. Mm. And the... the very Hellraiser-esque architecture and the uh, sort of art design that went through it. But there's one thing I don't understand. Uh, and I, by the way, it's just maybe some peculiar dialogue, but I couldn't help noticing that when, uh, you know when there's some dialogue that just, it's like a swing and a miss. Mm-hmm. So Terry Farrell's playing Joey. She goes into uh, the boiler room. She says, I'm looking for a pretty girl. Could you not? The barman replies to her, J.P. Munro, that way.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's, one, that's not what she asked. And two, she said, I'm looking for a pretty girl. In a nightclub, you kind of need to give the guy a bit more information than that. Yeah, there's quite a lot of pretty girls in that nightclub too. And J.P. Munro, who's in a restaurant, which has like <laughs> yeah. all this classical music <laughs> playing, lobsters and five-star silver served dining, right next to uh, that grunge rock I mean, do you, I mean what, <laughs> what's, your, what's your target customer yeah. here J.P. Monroe although, uh,
2: I, I've got to say I think that scene was chopped down a bit because I have got the Blu-ray of this one and it does have an option to watch it with some deleted scenes mm-hmm. and that bit is extended if mm-hmm. I recall correctly although not restored so it does show you the cutting room footage rather than the restoration and by the way the arrow blu-rays of these three films look fucking phenomenal especially yeah. part three absolutely spot on but yeah i think a few of the scenes where the dialogue just seems a bit odd of, of been cut down to get it towards that beautiful 90 minute point
0: i like the idea of the extended scene mimicking the way that in the first film we define Larry as a bit of a beta by having him talk about how he got hurt at a party. And you like to think mm-hmm. that JP's incidental banter is him going, Yeah, so I was shagging this girl while smoking. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or maybe he's explaining the business model of a place. He's going, A lot of people think you can't mix five star fine dining with a metal club, but I showed that you can.
1: <laughs> Here's why. I suppose it mixes with a lot of, um, as I said about the Hellraiser 1, because it'll have. You know, shots where we're doing the sex and violence, where Julia's having a flashback to Larry cutting his hand in real time, and they did a lot of those sort of double perspective shots, where there's something up close is in focus and something far away is also in focus. So it's very Brian de Palma, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like the the Pillar of Souls, I had a I had a Mandela effect about the Pillar of Souls because we see. You know, the sort of hobo guardian guy of the box, uh, sort of making a sell to the guy. And he comes and he sees the Pillar of Souls. That looks artsy. I might uh, buy that. I remember this being like he hands over some money and the guy saying exactly the price I had in mind. But he doesn't say that. He says just the figure I had in mind. And I was like, yeah. I was just a little bit disappointed with that. I remembered that bit being better than what it was because price because the figure ha- would have to refer to a a number and the amount of money as but the price it's like the price is your soul. You know what I mean?
0: But it could also be the the figure he has in mind. The figure is a pun on statues being called figures. Mm-hmm.
2: No, there's <laughs> that. All, all the type of person that, that JP is. You can tell J.P. would refer to money as a figure in order to try and turn women on. <laughs> but, I mean, to be fair, going back to that little interaction, it was pretty good anyway. I mean, yeah. it, it does build it up quite nicely. You've got this yuppie guy, and the guy you know is, I guess, I don't know, the, the, the keeper of the box or whatever. You know, we've seen him in the, at the end mm-hmm. of the second and dotted about in the first film, although this time he's played by not Chris Christopherson. Chris Christopherson's the correct actor to play that role.
1: But I think he's. He, I think he's too big for that role. Yeah. But he would be great for
2: it. It's a spitting image of whoever. Anyways, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh yeah, that's that's a pretty. I mean, just the the whole. That, that's the opening scene, isn't it? Just the whole opening of that. It was just there's something beautiful about it. You got the big. Painting of the cityscape merged with mm-hmm. the, you know, obviously it's a soundstage set that the car drives in. Uh, there's just something magic about this this uh, film, the way it's filmed. It's got that early 90s sheen. It's obviously a different distributor, a different studio behind it. Mm-hmm. And it it really does have this extra layer to so I think, as David mentioned earlier, this is, or, or yourself, sorry, I can't remember. This is. Definitively an American movie. There's, there's no arguing about where this film's set. You know what? Who's yeah. in it? It's definitely American, therefore it has just a, a different style to
1: it. Oh, totally. It's, uh, it's very much full-blown American setting. uh We even get the Twin Towers in one of the establishing yeah. shots quite early on. And I mean, I'm, I'm happy to you know, feel this is this is films finally found a home, at least instead of everything being ambiguous. Um I have uh in my notes I have a couple things I'll bring up. One is the sort of the bus jump scare. And this is gonna mm-hmm. come up in a few of the sequels as well, where someone is on a bus and then there's just this random jump scare and I have no idea why or what they're trying <laughs> to accomplish with that but the other one that I've had to bring up uh, before I miss my chance would be about Pinhead himself in this film because he is the there's something very special I think about the original four Cenobites but he is the only one that will carry on now from this movie series going onwards but in this film and in Hellraiser 2 randomly he seems to be quite omniscient like he knows that tiffany her hands opened the box but it's desire that that pushed us here and in this film when jp Monroe shoots him with the gun and he spits the bullets out he goes that's the gun you killed your parents with isn't it mm. pinhead how would you know this pinhead is referencing like find that thing inside yourself that makes you beautiful and unique and like, J.P. Monroe says this to seduce uh, his first blonde girl early on in the movie, and Pinhead is referencing that back to him. And Pinhead also knows that Terry doesn't dream. Where is he getting this information? And also, if Pinhead is this knowledgeable, how, then, in the first film, did he not know that Frank had slipped him?
0: Oh, fuck, yeah, absolutely. That's You're absolutely great.
1: quite a blind spot to have absolutely right
0: I I didn't really have an issue with him being an omniscient in this one largely because I liked that it was a return to um, moral relativism again, it was bringing back the idea that Pinhead doesn't really give a fuck about right and wrong, you know, for him it's like it's just, you open the box, we're coming after you Mm. and I think I was very much focused on that rather than thinking about how this connects to the first but yeah, you're absolutely right, the omniscience just hasn't been there up until that wasn't there in the first one it sort of was in the second is really amped up here
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah good point I want to touch upon one of the big themes of this movie war is hell with the war scenes we don't really have that much budget but I think they do a really good job of communicating just how shit war is I think those flashback scenes Luke or dream scenes Aside from uh, Joey in her white dress, which I assume is knowingly cheesy, like a yoghurt advert, (laughs) at the same time, the uh, battle scenes look really good for a budget. I really enjoy when we get to meet Elliot Spencer as well. That whole sequence where, again, getting a backing story for Pinhead is actually pretty rewarding in a way that it generally isn't for other horror villains. So that's something quite special, I reckon, about this series. Finding the human behind all the uh, behind all the of the nails. In fact, Pinhead, we have some of the very best moments of Pinhead in the series here, particularly in this club, where I'm pretty sure he kills more people in this film than the rest of the series he, combined.
1: Yeah, the, we're in Rambo numbers here with the amount of people <laughs> that he kills, <laughs> and I think we are because I mean it's not we don't get to see him kill absolutely everybody, but it's heavily heavily implied that. Everyone in the club that night lost their lives. I love the door blowing up, someone getting thrown into the, um, into the bar from high above, Pinhead just going, shall we begin? And we're just followed by a series of quite comical deaths.
0: I love the bit we see that person whose mouth's been overloaded with pool balls. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and not like that where there's a woman sat at the table and a drink takes the shape of Pinhead's yeah. face? and then just stabs oh, the through yeah. the mouth as an icicle.
0: Oh, God, yeah. Um, oh, by the way, a wee thing I, wanted, I should have mentioned about the second one. The whole thing of the box turning into a knife was bollocks in the second one. I didn't like that. And we do have a few little weird moments like that in the third one here. It uh, does like happen Pin- again, yeah. Also, Pinhead, whilst he can kill an entire club of people, he is remarkably shit
2: at chasing Joey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep it's it's very odd isn't it he he has to set his new Cenobite followers onto a um, now with Freddy Krueger style wise cracks yeah uh, it's it's uh, a, a poor showing in terms of Cenobites in this one what
1: I will say about this film is that in my personal opinion these are in the entire franchise some of the dumbest Cenobites that we see <laughs> The CD, CD, head, yeah. The what's the other one? Camera head, yeah. And the barman.
0: <laughs> he says we're a, sh- yeah. a shadow of my mm-hmm. former troops. I fucking agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: you, you've got, <laughs> you've got Doc, who you know is single-handedly the best and worst character in the film. <laughs> yeah, great <laughs> character. <laughs> Shit, xenobite. Yeah, um, and a terrible actor as well. He was straight out of a DTV action film.
0: <laughs> the very worst acting of the film is the JP chat-up scene with the blonde. <laughs> like partly because of the dialogue, she's like, Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> you're jp aren't you? You're like absolutely fancying this guy. And he's like, Yes, I am. Like that whole exchange is just awkward.
1: I kind of put that down to his Perform, the actor's performance is he's performing someone who is themselves performing to try and get someone into bed. Mm. So you could say there's layers of acting there, and he's just really bad at it. And I think the <laughs> Or only, he's really good at it. I think it. the only reason he gets as much uh, female action as he does is because he's as wealthy as he is through, remember, his business model. Um, yeah. what I was just <laughs> kill your parents. <laughs> <laughs> Just to touch back on um the doc, the cameraman, um he is so badly dubbed. All of his lines I mean I'm seeing him standing <laughs> in the recording studio with, you know, the headphone on, do that line again, and they're doing it so many times and I just reach a point I'm thinking, Ah, oh, that'll do.
2: know, well, I think it was the only film he's actually been in. Uh, unsurprisingly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is I guess it is kind of a significant role uh, but yeah but yeah. don't we see uh, yeah JP also becomes a Cenobite that's as well true. with uh, some plumbing forcibly fixed into his head
0: yeah the little cock <laughs> has going back and forth you know his, his big vice the point that you made uh, as we were watching these in the group chat we mentioned that uh, with uh with Terry, how her big thing is, has a cigarette. Yeah,
2: yeah. They're, like, they, they all seem to have their own trait. Obviously, Doc is mm. a cameraman. You've got the DJ and the barman. And Terry's just got the fag on the go. You know, he's, he's got one, <laughs> one in a throat. Obviously, yeah. a bit of a not too uh, deep throat from the previous yep. couple of films. And it's she's mm-hmm. just stood there, like, singeing. Joey on her arms when the managed to get older. <laughs> oh, that whole bit
0: where they're circling Joey, I thought was really well done. I was a big fan of that. I thought the yeah. fight be- the fight between Pinhead and Elliot was okay. It was a little bit clumsy, and I didn't like that mm. the that like it kind of rested upon Pinhead's weapon whatever tool he's creating takes so fucking long yeah. to like to get set up like that's a good 30 seconds of a fight but you're hearing this machine go
2: coming to life <laughs> yeah.
1: i also want to add just with the hell with the uh, the cenobites where you actually see them they have these sort of belts maybe it's a cenobite version of utility belt but they all have these sort of different <laughs> types of knives hanging from them hmm. and we do see pinhead unhook one of these knives Lift his arm up like he's about to strike her, and then that's when Elliot Spencer comes in to save the day. Do we ever actually see any of the Cenobites use any of those knives? Because I'm trying I to think, and I think so. I think we do.
0: Because you always start with to use the thing that create the box turning itself into a knife. In, mm. in
2: the first film, uh, again, I think. It's it's uh, a deep throat is scraping like that hook across the yes, wall and there's yes. the blood starts seeping out from that trail. But again, it's only done in a threatening manner rather than yeah. actually using them as a weapon.
3: Yeah,
0: uh, I want to give this one a huge compliment because something I think this has over both of the first two is this immediate sense of momentum the hospital scene, we've got all the chains being dragged in. It's like, oh, this is fucking interesting. The exploding mm. head, which yeah. just looks fantastic. Like, from the get-go, we're really plunged into this movie. We're given an immediate sense of peril. Yep. And I like that we are going, okay, well, everything you knew in the past, fuck it. This is now about a journalist. Like, for me, it was a really interesting start to the film, a really punchy first act, and just made an immediate mm. impression on me. I really enjoyed just some of it, was really well paced. And for me, this is a better film than the second one is.
2: Yeah, there's some issue. I agree. I agree
0: because it was that. Good. I'm,
1: gl- um, <laughs> I'm also <laughs> in agreement, yeah. Way I, on this wrong. On this rewatch, um because I would have always have put two above three, but on this current rewatch, I just, I, I had more
2: fun watching three again mm-hmm. than I did two. Definitely. I, yeah, yeah not is it more fun, it just narratively is a lot more coherent as well mm-hmm. if there are some problems with this one I, I thought when we're seeing the street scene and
0: when we're going to the street in New York everything's exploding it looked okay but it was clear that they didn't yet have either the technology or the budget to really commit to the concept yeah, but at the same time, like you're like hell on earth, and then you go right. So there's like these four twats just walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> like they look like, they, they, they look like menaces rather than demons. But I, this or sad bastard who's dressed up for Halloween's a little bit drunk.
1: But I uh, yeah, suppose the title "Hell on Earth" is more punchy than "Hell on this one particular street." <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> but at, yeah. the, at the same time, like I had a really good time with this one. Um, I think this is. Maybe I'll change my mind as we rewatch. You know, it's always good to rewatch these films. I've only seen all the sequels once, but for my money, this is the second best film of the franchise. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, 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 this rewatch, I enjoyed it as much as I ever have. And also, weird little bit which will come back later on. I won't say which number this comes back in, right? But. We see a bit of a tech, the, bit of technology uh, trickery with Pinhead, the bit where they reveal that her TV's been unplugged, right? And then you're like, what? Like that baffled me. Like the idea of this, you couldn't just be watching the telly and get the updates, <laughs> turning her telly on yeah. somehow. You, you've also and this comes back in a lover one in a really funny way. You've also got the wireless in the
2: cupboard as well, even though it's a wireless. Obviously, you it. <laughs> The camera changes to the back of it, and you see the the uh, power mm-hmm. cord all coiled up. But again, wait, yeah. maybe that's what I
0: was thinking of rather than a TV. I could be having a false. Well, memory the TV
2: here. was at, uh, at like a red herring for her anyway, wasn't it? It was a news report of the boiler room massacre. Mm. But when she rings Doc, Doc puts the TV on, and you know it's just regular programming.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. <so. laughs> but yeah. I mean, I mean if we know that we know that Elliot Spencer can somehow fuck with these things as well because he's able to make his own face appear. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, right? I'm mean, to go with something like such a double standard. In the second movie, I'd have found that annoying. In the third <laughs> movie, because the third movie's a little bit goofier anyway, I'm willing yeah. to go with it. Yeah, <laughs> like this is just a more fun movie. It, it I'm, is, I think yeah.
2: With this one, it is structured a lot more uh intelligently to use the word loosely <laughs> um <laughs> it, it makes it like in the second film it clearly there are it is jarringly structured like you feel like you stop starting stop starting whereas in this one everything flows a lot smoother everything makes sense as it's revealed uh, with elliot and pinhead um which, speaking of Elliot, it's a nice little nod to the opening of the second film where we see him in his, is it his barracks playing with the puzzle box, yeah. how he becomes Pinhead. And it's it's nice how that, that sakes together. And, mm-hmm. and going back to, as you mentioned, the depictions of war in hell and so on, those trenches were incredible. For the budget this film had mm-hmm. and, and getting those scenes together... Uh, every time it showed you, I, again, I was, was pretty much astonished at how well this looked, particularly at those points. And again, going back to the hell on earth bit where she's running through the streets that clearly aren't New York. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just got big canon vibes from that. Uh, Masters of the Universe, it reminded me of that. <laughs> where obviously mm-hmm. they don't have the budget to make this uh, a different planet or whatever. They so couldn't just film gonna, it on
1: Eternity. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, so we're just going to do it in small-town backwater USA where clearly <laughs> they filmed the streets of New York for this where even the police... <laughs> Don't have NYPD uniforms. They literally have mountains (laughs) on their badges (laughs) on their shirts.
1: Oh man, I didn't know that. That's brilliant.
0: Well observed. When you mention about the war scenes, if you don't just do one war either, they show two different wars. You've got World War 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 One, you've got the Namzies.
1: Both of which look really good. There's a line of dialogue which kind of tries to link them like a dream of one war is a dream of all wars. Which I, I think that's just a bit of connecting the dots uh, BS really, but um, I mean I do like the war sequences, both the Vietnam one and the the World War one. I. I do find that like we're we're picking wars here that these wars in particular were very traumatizing to the people and the nations that were involved in them, and I think it was a good shout to use those two as a perspective. Obviously, I mean we had to with Elliot Spencer because. Hellraiser Two had already set that, uh, set that mm. in canon that that is where he was he was lost, and having Joey having lost her father in a war scenario as well. As I say, I still feel it should have been Kirsty's story. But Ashley Lawrence is in this film in a very very brief cameo, which I kind of feel her character deserved a bit more.
2: Really, it was very drama school, wasn't it? like just acting to a table really. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, i yeah. just got uh you yeah, know maybe rehearsal vibes audition it, 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 vibes from that it's just you're yeah, so it putting a off great. you know uh terminator 2 judgment
1: day when you got linda yeah. hamilton acting to the table but the, the, the machines are coming they'll kill us all yeah it was very much very much that
0: you know what you're saying about um how this could have been Tiffany and Kirsty. I agree with you, but I think it's a very conscious parallel we're doing because we also have JP, I guess, acting as an analog for Pinhead in this. You've got this guy whose big thing is his lust. Or I suppose he's an analog for Frank, actually, if anything. And uh, that, like, JP's basically all of a sudden deadly sins put into one person. But that's what is really driving him here. I guess, like, you also have this thing of, like, well, missing favors, which we have with. Um, uh, Kirsty, the second one, but also Joy in this.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, we've and um, I, I, I just think like it seems like we're very consciously trying to recreate parts of the previous ones, but it strikes me as more just saying, well, this is you know, this is a universal story here that we're telling. The idea of sin and salvation and that's the big hot buttons for the whole series, really. Because mm-hmm. Hellraiser is a series, and this isn't going to specifics. I don't want to spoil the sequels here for for Jim, but there's a lot of repetition of themes in this, and I think it's, in some cases well done, and other times when, say, Rick Bota gets his, uh, his grubby hands in the series, <laughs> I don't think it's particularly compellingly done. I think, uh, I think here it strikes me as for going, okay, well, let's try and relocate a similar story. We see kind of echoes from a very recent past here in the next films. We see the idea of humans as fallible for the same kinds of reasons, the same kinds of desires. And yet, when we get to the later ones, we're like, we're just going to use the same plot twist three times.
1: This trilogy, what I do like about the trilogy is that the continuity is actually quite tight. All sequels mm. follow on from exactly where the previous one left off. That's not going to be true of many of the other sequels going forward, and particularly the, the Rick Bota trilogy. I'm kind of looking forward to that podcast because there's things I want to say about those. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah so with this film i do feel that it should have been kirsty's story and i mean who knows if maybe she even wanted to be a reporter to help out other people that could have been worked into her because she was essentially a goody two-shoes uh, not a goody two-shoes i mean that in a bad way that's, that's just who her character was was to do right by people and it would have worked for her character as well i complete side note I just want to mention something quite quickly because I I do like my Star Trek and I appreciate those we've got Andrew Robinson in Hellraiser 1 and uh, Terry Farrell in Hellraiser 3 both of whom appear in Star Trek Deep Space 9 for a large number of that uh, show's seasons so it's going to be good to see those actors in something outside of Trek I will say that so guys before we
0: go on for even longer let's do let's uh, do the ratings of this one this one, this time I'm going to give it four stars. Big fan of Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Second best of the series. Maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe, who knows, maybe part four or part five will really do it for me this time. Six to eight, sure as fuck won't. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, i go give this one four stars. How about yourself, Alistair?
2: Yeah, I'm going to give this four stars as well.
0: And, uh, Jim, were you also four stars?
2: Yep, definitely. De- uh, obviously, I gave two four stars, but it's better than two. I enjoyed it a hell of a lot more. But this, this is one film I watch every time I watch it. I enjoy it even more uh, the next time around. Uh, I've just got to say, I know we're trying to wrap things up, but for a film called Hellraiser with demons from hell, there's very little religious imagery throughout. Uh, You know, I know we get the odd like Virgin Mary statue in on the mantelpiece and We see a church in the third film. But I'm I'm wondering if that's to appease American audiences, just to make it a little more universal, because obviously it's... it's The church scene in in 3 did feel quite tacked on. Mm. like Running into the priest,
1: oh no, demons are uh, allegories. And she's like, what the hell is that? What (laughs) 3 does well is that... It knows what its money shots are. Like, for instance, the camera mm. will linger on Terry when she says, look, it's the box, and she's holding up a stencil sketching of it. Yeah. Or the camera will hold on Terry Farrell when she's like, what the fuck is that? And we reference their cut back to Pinhead busting into the church and yeah. just being a bit of a troll in the church, really. Just there to trying to ruffle some religious things? feathers. Yeah. yeah.
0: I wonder if maybe part of it is because uh, I don't know much about Clive Barker, his personal life at all, but I know that he's kind of got, like H.P. Lovecraft, he's got this kind of extended lore, his extended universe. And I'm wondering if the idea of using religious imagery, he doesn't want, maybe he doesn't want to tie himself down to a particular version mm. of hell. Mm. Like, if he, like if he's playing it for you sort of Judeo-Christian uh, kind of tradition, then I wonder if that would be seen as a bit too limiting for the guy. Because like you know he's he's written numerous books that take place in kind of big metal worlds like uh, one of one of them um, has like what well, like five different worlds all on top of each other and things mm. you know the uh, weave world ones another sort of huge fantasy epic like he's got yeah he's got his short stories like books of blood etc but he's also got his massive door stoppers. So uh, I'm wondering if that's maybe what it's about. But yeah, maybe there is also an element of playing it safe. Because we do still have, uh, like, the idea of lust is really at the seat of all of these films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It will be for many of the sequels. But at the same time, I, uh, and the sort of a vague notion of sin and salvation. But at the same time, yeah, I, I, I like to think it was a, a creative choice rather than something that was demanded.
1: I do notice that with, with Hellraiser 1, Pinhead does describe them as uh, him and his his team of uh, demons as demons to some angels to others, mm. and that the angels aspect is very much abandoned
2: early on. They are just demons through and through from that moment onwards. Well, I always interpreted that as you know the 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 box is a gateway to a higher play pleasure, isn't it? But we see that pleasure is also as much pain and suffering as it yeah. is pleasure. So uh, I always interpret it, that as it's the, the way they act. Some people might get off on that as well. So. Mm. Yeah.
1: But of, of all the people, of all the pleasure seekers that we see in the series, of the humans, I mean, I think Frank was the most pleasure-seeking of them all. He, uh, the Cenobites were too spicy for him. <laughs>
3: yeah
2: i think frank sells it the best like that that character is absolutely a peak of that that sort of persona yeah yeah
0: so folks let's go to start wrapping this one up A list, and in front of me here, I have from the rating website Ranker the best <laughs> horror movies about hell. So, this is last update in 2020. There's been 4.4 uh, thousand votes cast from 706 voters. They have assembled 10 horror films which are either set in hell or feature demons, a strong, a strong, a uh, hellish. Uh, aspect to it. So, okay. what films do we reckon are on there? And excuse the way that I said that, basically, not all of these go to hell, but I think all of them, hell's an integral part mm-hmm.
1: of them. I would, th- I mean, that list would be remiss if The Exorcist is not on there. The Exorcist is not on here. Very surprising. That list I is
0: know, remiss. But, I, 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 but The Exorcist doesn't, you know, we don't see, de- we, I suppose we have demonic possession, but I we don't have a money shot there's no money shot in hell or anything well in
2: Exorcist 3 we do yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> where we've <with>, uh, <laughs> in the cell at the end that's true Exorcist 3 uh, is not on the list I've, I've got to be honest the only films I can think of aren't actually horror films um, what dreams may come is one film that stands out when I think of depictions of heaven and hell mm-hmm. and even Limbo I suppose that film covers all of those Um, And also Uh, uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Damn, I was just about to say (laughs) that.
0: (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: Neither neither of those are in it. One film, if that's potentially multiple films you've mentioned tonight, are on there. Oh, Hellraiser's. Hellraiser is number one. Hellraiser Hellraiser 2 is number four. Event Horizon? Event Horizon is number three.
3: Oh, well
2: done. (laughs) (laughs) What else do we reckon? Uh, I'm, I'm struggling as I say but, but most of the films that spring to mind aren't actually horrors and yeah I can't believe I didn't think of any of the Hellraiser films oh. <laughs> especially part two
1: <laughs> so, can, oddly uh, because uh, we just spent like, the past couple yeah. of hours talking about the Hellraiser <laughs> just automatically sort of ruled them out you
0: know, the, la- the <laughs> I last I three did. hours this, this edit is going to be a right old pain in the arse um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of them, number 10, I'll give you a clue. This was based on a book by Mr. Richard Matheson.
1: Oh, um, I Am Legend, The Shrinking Man, one of them. Uh,
0: nope, one of his other ones.
1: Well, oh, what were his other ones again?
0: It's The Legend of Hell House, based upon the novel Hell House. Uh, so it's from
2: 1973. What's, Next uh, one. Keanu Reeves. Uh, da, 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 da. It was Hellblazer Constantine.
0: Yes, yes, Constantine. Is, Constantine, I shit you not, is number two. <laughs> so, uh, number nine, film starring Viggo Mortensen and Christopher Walken, made in
3: 1995.
0: Dogma? Nope. Viggo Mortensen, <laughs> <and> Christopher Walken. <laughs> no, no. Wait, wait. Prophecy. Yeah, prophecy. Fucking, uh, okay, you redeemed yourself so well there. Uh, yeah, absolutely, prophecy. Number eight. A film recently remade, Adrian Lin is director, and it's all about a... Uh, this is weird. Ranker says this is Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin's not in this, is he? Uh, it's a film about a Vietnam vet.
2: What am I thinking um, of? Um, Jacob But I remember seeing that um, it was actually after I played the Silent Hill games, and there's a lot of imagery in there that you see in those games, which is quite surprising.
0: Uh, The next one is an absolute riot. It's a Sam Raimi film from the year 2009. It's like a ghost train. What the heck am I thinking of here?
2: Uh, it's dragged me to hell, isn't it? But yes. I haven't actually mm-hmm. seen it. So
0: uh. <laughs> oh, <fuck>. this <laughs> Sorry, is, is a that. really, really enjoyable movie. I, I had such a good time watching this one at the cinema. It, it like, it's just, it's a ghost train thing. There's, there's like a jump sequence every few minutes. Like the evil dead films, it doesn't take itself particularly seriously. It's just so much fun. Uh, you've seen this one, Alistair.
1: Yes, I have. Yeah. You a big fan? Yeah, I am. It's a, it's a really good laugh. Um, so some of the humour in it is even underplayed. There's, um, I think it's the, it's the spiritual advisor he's, he's trying to summon the demon and stick the demon into the body of the goat, but he says to so you, "You must not break the bond. You must not break the bond." And he's trying to tell her what to do during the ceremony, and she goes, "I'll try." And that's not what you say when your soul's being threatened with <laughs> everlasting damnation. Um, there's, there's you feel sorry for her character at some points in that film, but uh, it's it is mostly played for laughs. So you can have a really good good laugh playing this one.
0: Oh, absolutely! And uh, a lot of the humour involves things going in and out of people's mouths, which has um, led some to suggest that there's an interpretation of a film that's about eating disorders, which would give it certainly give it a serious subtext. But it's got so many gross-out moments. I think it's,
1: I think it's wonderful. I think it's for visual yucks as well, mm. mainly.
3: Next
0: up, this is a movie starring Johnny Depp. We've mentioned it on the show before. Steph is a big fan. It's directed by Roman Polanski. Oh, uh,
2: the the ninth game. Ninth Gate.
0: Ninth Gate, yeah. absolutely. Either um, of you guys seen
2: that one? I'm yeah. afraid not. Yeah. Um, I watched it. I think it was after Steph was spawning over it, to be fair. So I think I went in with my expectations a little too high on that one. So it's it's a decent enough film, but there's always that, you know, elephant in the room, isn't there? You know, mm. it's, it's a Polanski, so... It, yeah, it kind of plays on your mind a bit.
0: <laughs> I remember watching our film as a kid. It was one of those uh, you read in the Radio Times that it's got nudity, so you stay up late night to watch <laughs> old movies. Um, back in the day, people used to actually buy uh, magazines that told them the, uh, the films are coming out. That's for all the young listeners, of which I'm sure we have many. <laughs> all the 30, 35 to 45-year-olds who make up our core audience and going, yeah, this is making me feel nostalgic. It's like where the uh, with a Peter Kay of horror podcast, you know, <laughs> remember Radio Times? Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm you know, staying up late to watch it, and there's a bit where an arse appears. Anyway. <laughs> next, next we come to number four. Sorry, number five. Number five. From the year 2014, this one takes place in Paris. It's a found footage film. What's it called, folks? As Above, So Below yes as yeah. above so below i quite i quite enjoyed this one it's one of those films i gave it a i, I reviewed it for a website i gave it a really negative review and i saw it again afterwards and went oh, that's even better than i thought <laughs> my review sucked um i think i'd give it two and a half stars and then i would probably give it three and a half stars so yeah basically i apologize to the filmmakers um who gave me a very nice screening
2: i'm thinking maybe borderlands but do they end up in hell in
0: that uh, it's not on the list anyway. By the way, did either of you guys see *As Above, So Below*? Or about, I'm the only one who's seen it. I have seen it,
2: but I remember the marketing for it very well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: with the marketing for it I, 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 was, I was part of that marketing So he told everyone that you could apparently lose weight watching this film because you burn so many calories because of how fucking scared you were <laughs> and uh, they, they knew this because me and about 10 other people were sat there with uh, heart monitors watching the movie and they'd take our readings and then go, oh, they burnt more calories than if they were, I don't know, doing fuck all <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and um the thing that annoyed me was they asked horror cult films to uh, t- to publish a-, a PR piece about this, saying, "Oh, look how many calories we burnt watching this film." You know what? Just sit in your arse and watch this film, you'll lose weight, right? And I said to them, "Have you got data on how other films impact people's heart rate? Like if you're watching a comedy, for instance, or like say a particularly happy rom com?" And they were like, "Yeah, we'll get back to you on that." Fuck all back. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, it helps you lose weight in a way that doing nothing doesn't. <laughs> uh, number four, a film we talked about tonight, Hellraiser two. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean Hellraiser three should be on the list, but hey, hey, it's not. Uh, it's not our three. list. Yep, <laughs> number three, as we said earlier, is Event Horizon. Absolutely fantastic movie that one, yep. and uh, very glad to see you up and up so high. I'm absolutely baffled that it's behind
1: Constantine. I wouldn't have even classed that film as a horror. That's kind of a religious action superhero type
2: film. Yeah, I, I, I think did. it does have a few a few moments in there that wouldn't be suitable for you know, a younger audience, but personally I would rate Constantine as a better film than Event Horizon. <laughs> oh. Oh, you're off the fucking yeah.
0: podcast next episode. Me and Alice are talking about parts four and five. Um, yeah. The bit where Constantine uh, gave Satan the finger—that was quite cool.
1: Yeah, like, it does have uh, its moments, Constantine, but it's it's it's, it's you, you can't really take that film uh, seriously. It's you're there for the fun. It's like it's meant to be like a roller coaster, a joyride. That film, um, but there, there were just not quite enough. Um, thrills, really, to keep me entertained throughout the, the whole duration of it. i right in thinking, Constantine was also a TV show, wasn't it? A
2: comic yeah. book. No, it's, um, yeah, it originally started as a comic book. They have adapted it into a TV show as well, which was pretty decent. I, a, a few years ago, there's a slew of DC TV shows that um, all... It, it's basically like what the Marvel have done with the Avengers movies is what DC have done on TV and made their own crossovers and everything. And Constantine appeared in a couple of episodes of different things before getting his own show, which was pretty good. It's quite dark, but personally, I ran out of steam with those. Like it's all very well having a series of films, but having a TV show that's an hour long that you got to come back to every week. And there's about eight different, <laughs> the characters yeah. and so on, you do kind of think enough is enough after a while, but the, the, at least they, uh, you know, made him British <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know, as, as the character yeah. is supposed to be.
0: Does he look like Sting?
2: Because I believe that's the design for the comic, right? Uh, I, I don't know about uh, who they base the character on, but he does have that bleach blonde.
3: Yeah,
2: puffed yeah. up hair, so yeah, but I, I guess you could say the it's... opposite of Keanu uh, Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so number one for this ranker list is, of course, Hellraiser.
3: Guys, Great. I want to finish
0: up by asking this wee question about Hellraiser. There's an upcoming remake of this film, yay or nay? Personally, sure. I'm excited. The, They've got the budget. If you, if, you pump, if, you, if you properly commit to this, I reckon it could be really cool.
2: Yeah, as, as you touched, I think you touched upon it earlier, saying, like, if are they going to go full-on CGI? Will it be practical effects? I mean, obviously, with the latter, it will be more appealing to myself. I, I, I would take Hellraiser 2 over any modern film made solely with computer-generated effects just because it feels like it has more of a, I guess, more of a soul to it would, yeah. would be one way of saying it. It's films, you know, where, where things, I, obviously practical effects, that you can tell it's, you know, synthetic, it's not real. But I, I find it more convincing than I do a computer-generated anything.
0: Uh, gonna... It's being directed by David Brockner, who did... Uh... His recent one was The Nighthouse, which I wasn't big on, but The Nighthouse looked amazing.
2: Uh, he did The Ritual. That that was pretty decent. That was mm-hmm. the one with uh, Rafe Spall traipsing yeah. through the, the woods. The woods of Sweden,
0: yeah. He he did the best segment in Southbound, which is the uh, accident one. Southbound, if folks haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's a really... Cool anthology film, very good mood running all the way through it. He's, he's worked on Creep Show as well, he's done VHS, uh, he did a short called Talk Show, he did that one. The, uh, I don't know if anyone remembers The the Signal, but uh, it's an it's a old film with three different directors, came out back in what, 2007? So, you know, he's, he's shown his stuff in horror, he's got a decent background in the genre, and he also strikes me as a guy who enjoys a good practical effect or at least uh at least like with something like the ritual the cgi is used quite sparingly but ritual they, they do some really cool world building where you've got the bits of a convenience store suddenly shows up in the forest and uh well, you know good. i can i think you can do a re- i think you can maybe do something mm. really good with hellraiser
2: yeah absolutely and and i i guess it's a, it depends on how they go in straight from the source material is it going to be just using some of that with an original script, or are they just going to be straight up remaking the original film? Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I think to my knowledge, it's, a, it's another adaptation. Um, so same source material, but um, like we've got a female pinhead this time around, which, whilst I'm sure that will have some fans absolutely raging, it is consistent with the books after all. The, mm-hmm. c- the Cenobite is described as androgynous, but ex- but we're explicitly told we have a feminine voice. And that's the uh, primary Cenobite mm. so uh, yeah I, 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 that makes me think we are going to be going in a, quite a different direction for kind of design and uh, I think it's one of the women from the L word who's going to be in it but yeah basically I'm I'm generally quite excited about about seeing what he does with it like this there's been uh, Jamie Clayton that's her name the thing is like this one there's been so many starts and stops and getting this fucking uh, remake out you know we've had a bunch of sequels that I, I believe are only ever made so they can retain the rights to be able to make this remake. So if they do something uh, nice and dark, get a budget behind it, I think this could look really cool.
2: Yeah, I, I, w- I would agree. Um, and uh, as far as casting goes, as long as the film's good, what you know, what does it matter who plays who?
0: Yeah, and uh, also Clive Barker is actually throwing his weight behind this one as well, which he hasn't done for good. any of them since part... Uh, part Four, I believe, is the last one that he, that he, uh, he got behind at all. Yeah.
1: I'm intrigued to see what they come up with uh, on this film. Because uh, I think we've, uh, for anyone who's read the the novella, The Hellbound Heart, you'll see how it, it does change from book to movie. And I think uh, Clive Barker saw it as a second chance to tell the story. And for me, the movie is actually the better of the two because there's some plot details that are just refined and sharpened. But i will be interesting to see what someone, you know, does with this material to come up with another remake on that original, which I think is perhaps the one film of the entire Hellraiser franchise as it stands right now that is worthy of a, a remake. And the thing I like about this franchise is that we've not got any of the discontinuities that we have, like, Let's say Halloween. Like there's no one film in this series that has had to be retconned. Like there are some bad ones. There's a few ropey ones, but none that's so bad that any of the sequels have to explicitly, you know, retcon the previous one. It's a full universe of ten movies, and I think there's um I think there's not just a remake of the original, but I've heard it's like a HBO. Are they not doing a TV series?
0: Yes, that's the other thing I've heard rumored. Um, You know, I don't know if that will actually see the light of day, but I think what Mm. the movie could certainly do is potentially rejuvenate the series. And if Mm. you know the movie's successful, there's no reason not to do a TV tie-in as well. And the TV tie-in wouldn't necessarily even have to be a direct sequel to it. Um, I'm thinking actually, if I have hazard to guess about this, I reckon something we will take from the movie rather than the book because I think they will take the relationship with Kirsty as being the daughter just because it's so much more interesting than her as the neighbour and also I mean in the book you've got the bizarre bit where Frank still looks at her in speech marks incestuously which doesn't really make any sense because we are not related and the idea is so much more horrific if they are so yeah it, it yeah. would surprise me if they do it a bit like with uh, Let Me In as a remake of Let The Right One In where they said alright we're using the same source material It's just we also ditched the same subplot that the original film ditched as well. Strange coincidence fact, you know? And uh, if we are getting a sort of smaller intimate picture but maybe seeing a little bit more of hell as well, I think we could be in for something really cool.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh,
0: Folks, we of course are three Hellraiser films down, so we have rather a lot to go to reach our part 10. Next time around that we're doing this, I don't know if it will be the next episode or an upcoming one, We'll be doing parts uh, four and five. So it'll be a, it should be a shorter show than this three-hour epic. Um, something that I just found out is the original script for part four is now available to purchase in paperback and in Kindle format. I think I might read it beforehand because I'm really curious as to see what was taken out of it for the version that we got. Because we know this is in production, hell. It's now on Smithy film for, uh, for a fucking reason. And... Um, it's. Uh, I don't want to go too much into my opinions on part four right now, but the script, by the sounds of it, it could be well worth reading. It sounds like it's something a lot more ambitious, something where it was made before the budget got slashed and slashed and slashed. And uh, yeah, frankly, it could be a really cool take on it. I'll take on it. This uh, movie. This movie that takes place across a span of hundreds of years. But anyway, it's an epic film, almost as epic as the sheer length of this podcast. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, For now, we wish you a fond farewell, and goodbye. Bye, folks.
2: See you next time. Bye-bye.
0: at Music by White Bat
3: Audio.